0: The following narrative is fiction, written and produced by the History Files podcast, and the timeless works of George Orwell inspire its themes. The world of the Great Reset takes place in the decade before 1984, and while it could be interpreted as an unofficial prequel, readers will notice unique differences. We hope you enjoy... The Great Reset by Blake Hamilton Chapter 1. Pancake Monday A crisp May morning settled on the City of London as John Harold stirred from his sleep. Staring at the ceiling, he recited in his head Bridget, Mark, Teacher, Two Grand Drive, London, his inner voice trailing off as he failed to recall the fifth memory. A sharp pang of distress pierced through him, leaving him breathless for a moment. Gathering himself, he glanced at the woman lying beside him, her face softened by sleep. Bridget, his high school sweetheart, and now his anchor in the turbulent sea of his failing memory. Their house was as ordinary as their life had been for the past few decades. Yet today, a peculiar urgency seemed to hover in the air, an urgency reflected in the pages of the morning newspaper that lay on the breakfast table. Picking it up, John's gaze fixated on the headlines. The world was preparing for the Great Reset of 1974, a project aiming to unite the world with a singular narrative of truth, a digitised global library. He frowned, crumpling the paper in his weathered hands. This isn't right, Bridget, he murmured, his eyes searching hers for understanding. History isn't meant to be a single story. It's about multiple perspectives, different voices. Bridget sighed, the corners of her eyes crinkling with concern and confusion. John, she began, her voice barely more than a whisper, "'I know you really care about these issues, "'but you know that this has been in the works for some time now, "'and to be honest, it's hard to keep up sometimes.' "'Their conversation was cut short by a sudden knock on the door. "'Bridget rose to answer it, "'her steps echoing the rhythm of familiarity in their humble home. "'Their son Mark stood at the threshold, "'his stern face relaxing into a warm smile at the sight of his mother. "'Morning, Mum,' he greeted, bending down to peck her on the cheek.' "'Morning, love,' she responded, stepping aside to let him in. "'You're right on time. Pancakes will be ready soon,' she said, referencing their Monday tradition. Mark Herold, an officer of the Ministry of the Corps Library and a staunch believer in the Great Reset, brought with him a gust of the world beyond their domestic bubble. As they gathered around the breakfast table, Mark, trying to convince his father about the virtues of the Great Reset, said, "'Dad!' "'You of all people should understand. "'This is about unity, about peace.' "'John countered, his voice sharp. "'It's about control, son. "'It's about silencing the voices "'that don't align with the League's narrative.' "'Mark's face tightened. "'I expected more from you, Dad. "'More support, more understanding.' "'Before the argument could escalate further, "'Bridget interjected, "'That's enough, both of you.' "'She turned to Mark, her voice softening. "'You should go now. "'You'll be late.' Mark glanced at his watch and grimaced. You're right, Mum. He leaned over to kiss her goodbye, then turned towards his father. A hint of concern laced his parting words. Dad, when are you going to stop living in the past? The door closed behind Mark, leaving a silence in its wake. John sat deflated, the joy of their breakfast tradition replaced by a sour taste. Bridget moved to sit next to him, her arm around his shoulders offering silent comfort. John, she said, getting down to look at him, her blue eyes filled with a mixture of love and worry. You're going to be late for school. A soft sigh escaped his lips as he nodded, kissing her forehead. Right. I'd better get going, he replied, standing from the table and heading to the hallway to collect his things. He walked out of the door, leaving behind the familiar comfort of his home and stepping into a world on the brink of monumental change. Chapter 2. Famous Faces John walked the familiar route to the high school, his worn leather bag with textbooks slung over his shoulder. His stride was measured, the result of a lifelong commitment to maintaining his health and fitness. He made it a point to walk to work each day, turning the journey into a gentle daily exercise and a challenge for his mind. He noted the names of the shops and streets, landmarks on his route, the florist's shop on Allen Street, the bakery on Carnaby Avenue, the grocer's shop at the corner of Dunstan Road, Each name was a victory, a confirmation that he was still holding on to reality. Catching a glimpse of his reflection in a storefront window, John noted the lines on his face, a testament to his 70 years of life. His hair was thinning and brown, combed neatly back. His clean-shaven face was framed by blue glasses perched on his nose, and despite the decades, his five-foot-nine figure was strong and hearty, a result of a life of outdoor activities hikes and countryside adventures with Bridget. It was not long until John arrived at the West London Public High School, a large brick complex built in the 1930s, worn and intimidating. He entered through its iron gates, walking the familiar path to his staff room on the second floor of Block D. The journey up the graffiti-strewn staircase was an unwelcome reminder of the mindless pranks of bored teenagers. He was always the first to arrive, the staff room cold and dark until he flicked on the lights at exactly 8.10am. He dropped his bag, stored his lunch in the bar fridge and brewed a strong black coffee, taking a sip and muttering to himself, Nectar of the Gods. Sitting down at his desk, John reached into his breast pocket and pulled out his diary. Its worn brown leather cover, etched with the words Property of the Ministry of Education, that he'd defiantly scratched out, felt familiar in his hands. The diary held his class timetable, a few phone numbers and two precious photographs, mementos of a time when life was simpler and his mind clearer. Having prepared his lesson plan, John reached into the old wooden chest that was under his desk. Over the years, he had amassed an impressive collection of personal resources to aid his teaching, maps, newspaper clippings, relics from the wars and letters of correspondence from various corners of the world. These were not the approved core library syllabus material, but they added a touch of authenticity that the textbooks often lacked. Though this practice was frowned upon by the Department of Education, John was nearing retirement and largely left alone. Arriving at the classroom door, he took a deep breath and braced himself. Class 9C was often rowdy, their adolescent energy proving a challenge to contain. Opening the door, he was met with the familiar cacophony of voices, and shuffling of desks. He ushered them into order, insisting they take their books out and stand at attention as he laid out the day's plan. There were a few groans from the back and some slouching shoulders, but overall the routine had proven effective. Now, gentlemen, are we ready? He began, revealing the game board for famous faces. The board displayed a collection of images of notable figures from history. The students loved this game, their competitive natures coming alive as they vied to recognise the individuals. Who can tell me who this man is? John asked, pointing to an image of a man with an oval-shaped face with intense blue eyes. His prominent nose and neatly groomed facial hair contributed to his distinguished and serious appearance. There was a moment's pause as the class studied the picture. The silence was then broken by a couple of boys from the back row. Isn't that Kent's girlfriend? One of the boys mocked. Like a flash, Kent struck back. That's funny. I thought your mum was my girlfriend, at least. That's what she told me last. Boys! John stepped in with a stern blast. A quiet fell over the class. Then a tall boy named Tom from the front row raised his hand. Sir, that's Woodrow Wilson, he offered, his tone confident. Very good, Tom, John praised, his voice echoing in the momentarily silent room. Woodrow Wilson, US President and the man who championed the idea of a League of Nations, a concept which has grown into the project we now know as the core library. Moving on to the next image, he asked, and who can tell me who this lady is? This time it was an image of a classic beauty with a regal presence. She had green eyes and short silver hair, a well-defined jawline and a stern expression. There was a bit of an unsure murmur through the class before Nick piped up from the middle of the room. That's Belinda Barrett, sir, "'the current director of the Core Library,' he said quickly, "'closing his book from the notes on his back page. "'Spot on, Tom,' John acknowledged. "'And there is nothing wrong with using your notes. "'It's why we make them in the first place,' "'he continued to address the whole class. "'Belinda Barrett. "'She continues the work started by Wilson, "'maintaining the Core Library's mission of preserving and presenting history "'in a single, unquestioning narrative. "'Certainly not a project that has happened overnight,' but don't they seem confident with this digital update? The kids all stare blankly at John. What's happening now? moaned a boy in the back. John removed his glasses and rubbed the bridge of his nose. The Great Reset ringing any bells? It was all over the news today. The boy looked at his mate next to him and said with a smile, that would be why I didn't know, because it's lame. John decided to push on. He knew getting bogged down here ran the risk of derailing the whole class. Anyway... ''Finally, who can tell me who this man is?'' John asked. Moving on to the last image of the game, it was a picture of a man with a distinguished appearance and a warm and charismatic smile. He had a round face, expressive eyes and neatly combed hair, reflecting his confidence. Simon, a typically reserved boy at the back of the class, raised his hand. ''That's Franklin D. Roosevelt, sir,'' he said with a noticeable hint of pride. ''Excellent, Simon. Franklin D. Roosevelt, indeed,'' John acknowledged. And can anyone tell me what's special about him? Simon piped up again. Isn't that the guy that got shot, sir? Quite right, John nodded. FDR was a very controversial president. After the Great Depression, he ran on a platform of opening America to the world and breaking its isolation. But this did not go down well with many of his citizens. It's a big reason why America is still such a small player on the global stage today. We agree on the core narrative, of course, but they mostly like to keep to themselves. Now on to the next phase of our lesson, John declared, moving over to a worn-out wooden box on his desk. It creaked open to reveal a plethora of historical treasures, maps, newspaper clippings and postcards. John loved to incorporate these tangible relics of the past into his teachings. It brought a sense of realness to the often abstract concepts of history. He started distributing the maps and newspaper clippings amongst the students, their faces lighting up with interest as they examined the artefacts. Today, we're discussing the end of the First World War, the Treaty of Versailles, and Germany's self-imposed isolation following its loss, John began, moving to the front of the class once more. He continued, Germany found itself under a cloud of shame and dishonour. As a result, it chose to isolate itself from the rest of the world, beginning the Walling Project, This was a time of great turmoil and transformation as Germany sought to reform itself from within. John carefully unfolded an old map from his personal collection. It was a German map from the 1920s, one that depicted the country's borders just after the Walling project began. The students craned their necks to catch a glimpse of the map, as John pointed out different features. This map, he said, is a stark reminder of a country in self-imposed exile. Desperately working to reclaim its honor. Remember, history often isn't just about grand battles and powerful leaders, but also about the people and societies that are caught up in these events, their efforts, struggles, and resilience. The human side of history is just as important. John traced his fingers over the worn, yellowed paper of the map, his eyes momentarily distant. This map was sent to me by my father, Robert, he revealed a note of nostalgia creeping into his voice. He was stationed in Germany during the occupation by the Entente. A hand shot up from the middle of the classroom. It was Ben, a curious boy with sharp eyes. Sir, where was he stationed? John paused. His mind reached for the answer, but to his dismay found nothing. A blank. That detail, a detail of his own father, was lost somewhere in the fog of his memory. He felt a sting of embarrassment. Well, Ben, he started deftly manoeuvring around the missing piece of information. That's a story for another day. A slight awkwardness hung in the air. John cleared his throat, moving on swiftly. My father. He never made it home. He was killed in an accident, John said, trying to keep his voice steady. This map. It was the last thing he sent me. The room fell silent, the boisterous energy of the boys temporarily tamed by the solemn story. The heavy silence was broken by a question that was half-statement, half-wonder. "'Sir,' blurted out a student named Jack, a usually quiet lad who rarely participated in discussions, "'why is this map printed wrong?' John, still caught up in his memories, looked at Jack with mild confusion. "'What do you mean, Jack?' Jack got up, and with a newfound boldness, walked over to the core library map hanging on the right side of the classroom. "'Look, sir,' he pointed, The borders on this map, they're smaller, your old map. It shows the walling project being bigger. Bewildered, John got up and compared the two maps. He scrutinised the borders of Germany on both maps. Indeed, the old map showed a larger Germany. The difference was subtle, yet undeniable. A sense of disquiet settled over him. Why hadn't he noticed this discrepancy before? What could this mean? Suddenly, the class seemed to hold its breath, waiting for his response. ''Must be a printing error, Jack,'' John managed to say after a moment, keeping his voice steady. ''I'll let the head teacher know there's a mistake on this new core library map. We'll have to get a new one.'' The rest of the lesson carried on in the usual way, with a steady rhythm of notes and questions and name-calling. But John couldn't shake off the feeling of unease the discrepancy in the maps had stirred in him. As the shrill bell marked the end of the first period, John weaved his way through the corridors navigating the thrumming river of students towards the refuge of the staff room. On the head teacher's desk, he delicately placed a folded note, its purpose simple yet critical, a request for a new and more accurate map. His pen had barely returned to his pocket when the echo of the second bell filled the air, a relentless reminder of the ceaseless march of time. Chapter 3. Librarians. John stood at the edge of the school grounds, waiting as the last of his students boarded their buses. His mind was still preoccupied with the mismatched maps when the sound of an approaching car pulled him out of his thoughts. A dark blue government sedan pulled up beside him, its glossy exterior seeming out of place amidst the school buses. The car doors opened and two figures stepped out. They were both immaculately dressed in dark blue coats, the emblem of a single silver book, the mark of the Corps library's enforcement division Emblazoned on their right breast pockets. These were the librarians. John's heart sunk at the sight of them. He despised this thought police, the zealous acolytes of the core narrative, who allowed no room for questions, doubts, or alternative views. Their rigid beliefs, their blind loyalty to the core narrative, and their willingness to enforce it at all costs made him deeply uncomfortable. Mr. Herald, one of them called out, his tone icy and formal. Yes, "'John replied, trying to rein in his disgust. "'We've received a complaint about some discrepancies "'with your teaching materials,' the second librarian stated, "'his eyes hard. "'John froze. "'His mind raced back to the note he'd left for the head teacher. "'He'd only meant to correct a simple error. "'Complaint?' he stammered. "'I only noticed a difference in—' "'The Ministry does not make mistakes, Mr Herald,' "'the first librarian interrupted him, "'his voice as cold as his gaze.' Your personal teaching materials, including your hazardous map, have been confiscated for incineration. We cannot risk feeding incorrect information to these students now, can we? John felt his blood turn cold at their words. The map, his father's last memory, to be incinerated. Fear mingled with anger, and for a moment he was at a loss for words. The day had turned from curious to deeply troubling. Hazardous, John erupted aghast. "'That's a personal possession. You can't just... "'We can, and we have, Mr Herald.' "'The second librarian cut him off sharply, "'pulling out a paper from his pocket and waving it at John. "'This is a warrant from the Ministry. "'It states that we have the authority to confiscate "'any items deemed contrary to the core narrative.' "'John felt a surge of fury, a heat that boiled his blood. "'Moreover, if you wish to retain your benefits, "'your long-service entitlements, "'I'd suggest you let this matter go.' the librarian continued, a threatening undercurrent in his voice. Also, remember that your son's position at the ministry is not so secure that it cannot be questioned. John's clenched fists were aching to release the pent-up anger. His gut instinct was to tell these thugs of the ministry exactly where they could shove their threats. He would gladly sacrifice a few months' pay to keep his father's maps, the only tangible connection he had left with his father. But then the image of Mark came to his mind. His son, a man with a young family with two young girls. Their relationship was already on rocky grounds, and John knew that jeopardising Mark's job security was a risk he couldn't afford to take. The thought of his son severing ties with him entirely was too painful to consider. With a defeated sigh, he let his hands unclench, the fire in his eyes dimming. As he watched the government car disappear into the distance, a heavy knot formed in his stomach. John made his way back to the staff room, his heart pounding with a mix of relief and residual anger. Upon opening the door, the sight that met his eyes made his blood boil anew. His desk was in shambles, with the unfinished coffee carelessly toppled over, saturating his prepared notes for the next day's class. With a scornful huff, he muttered under his breath, Wankers! And then, amid the chaos, he found it a forgotten relic they had carelessly left behind. A photograph of his father, Robert, stationed somewhere in the idyllic German countryside, surrounded by his unit buddies. Their smiles were infectious, a stark contrast to the sombre mood hanging in the room. With a sense of reverence, John carefully picked up the photograph of his father and his unit buddies. His hands were steady as he delicately placed the precious memento into his diary, nestling it securely between the pages. The diary had become a sanctuary of memories, holding a snapshot of John and Bridget camping as teenagers and an image of Bridget cradling a newborn baby Mark. John closed the diary gently, tucking away the tangible fragments of his past within the worn brown cover. His day may have been marred by conflict, but this small victory lent him a sense of comfort. The librarians had not managed to take everything. He still had pieces of his past, remnants of his memories safely tucked away within the pages. Chapter 4. Bridget. The house was quiet when John finally got home, well past eight in the evening. The soft glow of the living room light and the low murmur of Bridget's voice on the phone was the only indication that she was still up, waiting for him. He opened the door slowly, his mind still grappling with the events of the day. John heard Bridget's voice trail off as he closed the front door. Wait, that must be him, I'll call you back, Mark, she said, ending the call and turning her worried gaze towards him. John, she breathed out, rushing to him, where on earth have you been? I was about to call the police. John chuckled bitterly, hanging his coat up on the rack. No need for that, love. They know exactly where I am. Bridget's brow furrowed in confusion. What does that mean? John sighed deeply, falling onto the couch next to his wife. He then began to recount the day's events, the map, the librarians, and the confiscation of his personal treasures. Bridget listened in silence, her hand tightly gripping John's. This is unacceptable, John. You need to do something, she exclaimed once John was finished. John laughed, the sound more bitter than before. And what should I do, Bridget? Take on the ministry. He shook his head, his gaze dropping to his hands. I can't even control my own mind. The words seemed to hang in the air between them, a palpable reminder of the struggles they were facing. Just then, John's breathing began to hitch, his body shaking slightly. Bridget recognised the signs. He was on the verge of a panic attack, something she had only witnessed once before when John had first received his diagnosis. John's breathing sped up, his chest rising and falling rapidly as he stumbled to his feet. He began to pace the room, his mutterings growing louder with each pass. I'm going to lose it all. He repeated over and over again. The words seemed to echo off the walls of their living room. Suddenly John began to sob, his strong shoulders shaking as he tried to hold back the flood of emotion. Bridget moved quickly, rushing to the bookshelf in the living room and pulling out a worn white book with the word Memories etched in elegant cursive across the front. She hurried back to John, gripping the book tightly in her hands. John, do you remember when we first met? She asked softly trying to distract him from his escalating panic. John and Bridget had first crossed paths in high school, a year after John's father had passed away. One afternoon, Bridget had been out walking along one of the local trails just outside of London. She had stumbled upon John, who, in a fit of reckless abandon, had decided to run on the uneven path of rocks and loose dirt, and twisted his ankle. Seeing his distress, Bridget had immediately swooped in, supporting him as he struggled to his feet. Together, they had begun the slow, stumbling walk back to the main road. The memory was as vivid as ever. Bridget could only hope it would be enough to pull John back from the edge. John's breathing started to slow, his chest rising and falling at a more natural rhythm. A faint smile pulled at the corners of his lips. ''I remember,'' he confessed. ''I was being a real tosser. As I recall, I told you to leave me alone at first, but you insisted. You said you were a nurse in training.'' and it was your sworn duty to save me. Bridget's lips quirked in amusement. And do you remember what we talked about on that walk back to the road? she asked. God, what didn't we talk about? John replied, a chuckle punctuating his words. Your voice was more soothing than morphine. Now you're just making stuff up, Bridget shot back, though there was no malice in her words. Instead her gaze was soft, filled with a warmth and affection that made John's heartache. You got me to tell you why I was being so reckless, John admitted, his smile faltering. I told you about my dad, and you took me on your bike back to my mother's house. His voice cracked on the last few words, but he pushed through, swallowing past the lump in his throat. He clung to Bridget's gaze, grounding himself in her presence as he let the memories wash over him. It's getting worse, Bridget, John confessed, his voice a quiet whisper in the otherwise silent room. I forgot the fifth thing today. I just can't recall it. Bridget gave his hand a gentle squeeze. It's got to be important, John. Something that was meant to anchor you, just like we talked about. Maybe it was something to do with your dad. At her words, John sat down again and pulled out his diary. The pages crinkled under his fingertips as he flipped through them, searching for some clue or reminder. He began to list all the things he still knew about his dad. His name, his accident, where he was... He opened to the page holding the photograph that the librarians had overlooked. His dad's unit photo. Handing it to Bridget, he felt a lump forming in his throat. This is him, Bridget, with his mates. But today in class, I couldn't remember where he was stationed. Bridget examined the photo carefully, her fingers tracing over the details. The emblem, she said suddenly, her finger tapping against the photo. John, look at their uniforms. Your father was in the British Army of the Rhine. I remember you telling me that they were stationed in Bonn, Germany. His heart stopped. That's it. That's the fifth thing. The realisation hit him like a punch to the gut, but it was also a great relief. Bridget kept her hand on his, a small source of warmth in the cool stillness. John's gaze was still fixed on the photograph, drinking in the details of his father's face, the same face he saw every time he looked in the mirror. The memory of his father's death, while distant was still a painful one. It had been classified as a freak accident. Over the years, he'd occasionally toyed with the idea of digging deeper into it, investigating beyond the official report. But he'd always been held back by the constant demands of everyday life. Yet now, something was different. With the day's events, the confrontation with the librarians, the confiscation of his father's map, the humiliation, the panic attack... A new determination had begun to stir within him. It was as if a switch had been flipped, changing his perspective entirely. I think, he began, his voice barely above a whisper. I think I need to look into my father's death, Bridget. There was a pause before she responded, her voice filled with both concern and understanding. John, are you sure? It won't be easy. He nodded, feeling the conviction solidifying within him. Yes, I'm sure. "'Something doesn't add up, Bridget. "'Today, today was a wake-up call. "'I need to do this.' "'But Bridget,' John stammered, "'anxiety creeping back into his voice. "'Without the fragments, without the map, "'how will I even know where to start?' "'Bridget, ever the practical one, "'simply squeezed his hand and offered him a reassuring smile. "'Well, you can always ask Mark for help. "'He works for the Ministry, after all.' "'John paused at her suggestion.' Mark embraced the past with the same passion as his father. He'd spent hours as a boy listening to John's stories about history, hungrily soaking up every detail. But John had a nagging fear. Mark was as passionate about the past as he was loyal to the ministry. How would he react to the idea of challenging the core library's narrative? John felt a knot of anxiety at the thought of putting his son in such a position. John stared at the photograph of his father one more time, He was standing at a crossroads. On one side lay the possibility of uncovering a truth that had been buried for decades, and on the other, the risk of putting his son in a difficult position. Closing the diary, he sighed, feeling the weight of the decision on his shoulders. As he glanced up at Bridget, he said quietly, I guess I just need to have faith. Chapter 5. Faith. The Herald living room was bathed in the warm glow of the setting sun filtering through the curtains, a cheery contrast to the cold and overcast day outside. The chatter and laughter from the dining room had begun to wane, replaced by the low murmur of the television set. An illuminated news report on the TV was broadcasting about a brewing conflict within the Eastern Alliance. This is the BBC, and the date today is May 14th, 1972. The commentator's calm voice filled the room, assuring viewers that the tensions within the alliance were being quickly and peacefully dealt with. Elizabeth Harold, Mark's wife, was clearing the remnants of dinner off the dining table. Her daughters, Rose and Mary, buzzing around her, their excitement undimmed by the late hour. The girls, despite their young ages, were interested in every detail of their surroundings. John sat in his usual armchair, eyes fixed on the television screen, although his thoughts were far away. He was only pulled back to the present when he heard the distinct sound of Mark's footsteps approaching. "'Dad, could we have a word?' Mark asked, a confident look on his face. He was holding two glasses of whiskey, one of which he offered to his father. John accepted the glass with a nod, curiosity piqued by the serious tone in Mark's voice. He turned the volume down on the television, shifting his attention to his son. "'I have something I want to tell you,' Mark said, looking excited." He took a deep breath, looking at his father, then glanced towards the dining room, where his family was laughing and chatting. John felt a spark of interest. "'What is it, Mark?' he asked, noticing the warmth in his son's voice. "'What's the good news?' Mark took a sip from his glass, then put it down on the table with a clink. "'Dad, I've accepted a position with the Ministry,' he began, his tone steady. "'I will be part of the team overseeing the completion of the Great Reset Project in London.' The mention of the Ministry and the Great Reset Project made John choke on his whiskey. He spluttered, looking at Mark with wide eyes. Is this some sort of joke? he asked, his voice laced with disbelief and a hint of sarcasm. Mark, taken aback by his father's harsh reaction, shook his head. No, Dad, it's not a joke. This is important work, and it will help maintain the great peace, he defended, sounding somewhat hurt. John stared at his son in disbelief. Mark, you can't be serious. You're a bright, capable man with so much potential. And you're throwing it all away to become a part of that, that authoritarian cult of an institution, he said, his voice filled with a mixture of disappointment and concern. Why don't you look in the mirror, Dad? If you want to talk about wasted talent, Mark retorted, his voice raising a few notches. He gestured towards his father. You're one of the brightest men I know yet you've spent years pouring your heart into teaching people who couldn't care less. You offered thousands the keys to understanding the world, our culture, and what it means to be human, and what do they do with that goodwill? Nothing. Not to mention that most of those same people would then pretend that they'd never been given a chance to know the truth, and instead make up their own sick view of the world. John's face was grave as he absorbed the harsh truth in Mark's words. You can't force knowledge onto people, he said after a long moment. It needs to be discovered. Yes, it's disappointing, but it's also necessary. That's where you're wrong, Dad, Mark interjected, shaking his head fervently. The Great Reset is exactly what we need to cement this precarious peace. Your faith in people is far too strong. They've proven time and time again that they can't be trusted to do the right thing. John's voice suddenly turned to a commanding yell one that Mark had not seen for a long time. And just who should I place my faith in? Who is the overseer now? You! A cold tension filled the room as father and son locked eyes, neither willing to yield. Just then, a small whimper echoed from the kitchen, shattering the icy standoff. The high-pitched, innocent voice of a young girl filled the room with a mixture of confusion and concern. Why is Daddy and Poppy fighting? Did we do something wrong? Both men broke their gaze, their bitter confrontation snapping back into reality. Mark cleared his throat, hastily collecting his composure. I think it's time we got the girls home to bed, he said, his voice barely above a whisper. John merely nodded in response, the anger still simmering beneath the surface. Bridget saw them to the door, her concern etched across her face. Casting a last look over her shoulder at John, she realised that he had turned his back to them, his gaze glued to the broadcast on the television. Finally, the door clicked shut behind them, leaving John alone with his thoughts and the flickering images on the TV, the faint commentary of distant problems, the only conversation left in the room. Chapter 6. The Truth. Mark Herold stood in the expansive halls of the Ministry of the Corps Library, surrounded by an air of quiet efficiency and an almost palpable sense of transition. Stacks of boxes each one meticulously labelled, filled the corridor, a testament to the significant move the Ministry was undergoing. From the traditional buildings attached to the Parliament, the Ministry was now relocating to a gargantuan structure in the heart of London. This towering building, a monolith of cold, unyielding concrete, was windowless, a physical representation of the Ministry's impenetrability. Its interior housed England's most extensive database, a symbol of power and control, primed to contain and administer the Great Reset's directives. His gaze landed on the thick oak door at the end of the hallway. The door belonged to an office that was all too familiar to him. It belonged to Belinda Barrett, or as the door simply designated, Overseer. On either side of the door two librarians stood guard. Dressed in identical dark blue trench coats, their faces devoid of any personal touch, they maintained a vigilant watch over the office. The only distinguishing mark on their uniform was was a silver book emblem printed on their breast pocket. One of the librarians, his gaze as icy and unreadable as his colleagues, turned to Mark. He made no sound and only a small gesture, yet his intention was clear, Mark was being summoned. With a deep breath, Mark steeled himself and moved towards the office. Upon entering the office, Mark was met with an immediate contrast to the organized chaos of the hallway outside. The room was an exercise in minimalism, stark and devoid of any chaos. Each item within it, from the cool metal desk to the dark blue leather chair, was meticulously arranged. There were no photos, no trinkets or mementos to suggest any personal touches. The austere simplicity of the room was as intimidating as it was efficient. The overseer, a regal, imposing figure, stood by the large window, her back to the room. From her vantage point, she had a commanding view of the ministry grounds stretching out below. The setting sun painted the scene in hues of gold and crimson, casting long shadows. Overseer Barrett, Mark greeted, his voice steady despite the knot of anticipation tightening in his stomach. Without turning, she gave a slight nod, acknowledging his presence. Silently, Overseer Barrett moved away from the window and walked over to her desk. With a fluid motion, she bent down and pulled out an old wooden box from beneath it. The box was weathered with age, "'It's wood dark and polished. "'To Mark, it seemed oddly familiar. "'Mr Herald,' the overseer began, "'her tone calm and even. "'It appears we have a problem.' "'She placed the box on the table, "'her fingers brushing lightly against its surface. "'The librarians confiscated this hazardous material "'from your father yesterday, "'and it begs the question of why you did not disclose "'the existence of such contents months ago. "'Taken aback, Mark struggled to respond.' I knew my father had items like this, but they are merely family mementos. Harmless. His words were cut short as the overseer sharply raised a finger, interrupting him. This is not harmless, Mr. Herald, she said, her voice stern. As I said, it is hazardous. Flustered, Mark found himself echoing her words, his voice barely above a whisper. As you say. As she spoke, the overseer picked up an old map and a postcard from the box, her fingers carelessly handling the objects. You see, Mr. Herald, she began, her voice steady, formal, we are in a constant battle with materials such as these contamination from the old world. She walked over to a small, unadorned metal cube in the corner of the room, its stainless steel cover glinting under the office lights. You might not be aware, she continued, but I can tell you that exactly 43.5% of our budget from the League and British Home Office is dedicated to containing material like this. Arriving at the cube, carefully, she lifted the lid. Of that 43.5%, she carried on, over half of that is spent containing propaganda from Germany. You would not believe the tripe that leaks out of the walls of that place. She then tossed the map and postcard inside the cube. The impact of the items on the object's bottom triggered instant incineration, the materials vanishing in a flash of heat and light. No! Mark blurted out, his reflexive lunge towards the family treasures too late to save them from destruction. The overseer, seemingly unbothered by Mark's outburst, spoke again. Mark, she began, I can see you are concerned, but that's because you are misinformed. I have brought you here to rectify that fact. She moved back to the desk and sat down, her posture as impeccable as ever. As everyone knows, Germany has been in self-imposed isolation since the end of the Great War. What most people don't know is that their self-reflection isn't working. They have made repeated attempts to break the peace, including one incident which, for the time being, must never leave this room. At this, Mark walked closer to the desk, his interest piqued by the gravity in her voice. Fifteen years ago, the overseer continued, her voice barely more than a whisper. The Germans were discovered to be working on a device of untold destructive power, a radioactive weapon that was destined for the heart of London itself. Mark grappled with the information he had just been given. Radioactive? I don't understand, he muttered, his brow furrowing. Since the 1930s, the Germans have been working on a strategy for revenge, all while in isolation, the overseer explained patiently. A team of chemists and physicists led by Otto Hahn, Fritz Strassmann and one Albert Einstein discovered how to release immense amounts of energy from a uranium atom. Mark looked sceptical. With all due respect, Overseer, but are you telling me that it took an entire nation almost twenty years to build a single bomb? Unimpressed by Mark's question, the Overseer reached into her desk and pulled out a small silvery-grey metal disc. She threw it at Mark, who caught it bewildered. A bomb of the nature to which I refer cannot be made with the naturally occurring metal in your hands, she explained. A small fraction of it must be painstakingly harvested, a process that requires a vast industrial network and, of course, ample time. Then how did we stop them? Mark asked, his scepticism gradually eroding. The overseer allowed the faintest smile to touch her lips. We did nothing to stop them, she said simply. Their own incompetence and corruption did the job for us. They blew up Berlin. That's impossible, Mark interjected, taken aback by the revelation. Undeterred, the overseer sensed she had Mark's full attention and decided to deliver the final piece of evidence. She reached into her desk one more time, extracting a tightly sealed folder. She broke the wax seal and produced three images. These are the Trinity photos. Decide for yourself, she said, sliding them on the desk's cold surface to Mark. Mark leant in and studied the images closely. Each depicted a wasteland of rubble and fire but it was the third photo that finally shattered his scepticism. In the centre of the photograph, six large pillars stood, not intact, but recognisable, and strewed around them, four horse statues appeared, partially melted from what only could be intense heat. That's the Brandenburg Gate, Mark murmured, almost to himself. Yes, Mark, the overseer replied, and once the great reset is complete, everyone will know the truth. Chapter 7 not found. Mark stepped out of the overseer's office, his mind buzzing with the truths he had just been told. The normally busy and bustling halls of the Ministry of the Corps Library were a blur as he made his way through them, his mind wrestling with the shocking revelations he had just been exposed to. His thoughts were disrupted when he heard a loud, distinct voice echoing through the expansive lobby. I am here to see my son. The voice unmistakably belonged to John Harold. Mark increased his pace towards the entrance, where his father was locked in a standoff with a librarian. Why do you need all this information? John's voice carried through the open space as Mark approached. Enough, Mark called out to the librarian, his tone sharp and commanding. Take your hands off my father. The tall figure of the librarian withdrew at Mark's command, returning to his post by the main entrance. Mark placed a comforting hand on his father's shoulder. Dad, what's wrong? he asked concern marking his features. John gave a gruff sigh, his frustration apparent. I just wanted to see you, and they wanted to know my whole life story. Turning towards the receptionist, Mark's expression was one of barely concealed anger. Why are you harassing my father like this? The receptionist, taken aback by his sudden hostility, stammered out an answer. Apologies, Mr. Harold, but we need to take the residential address of all visitors. It's just standard procedure." "'Confused, Mark pressed her. "'And the other information you requested?' "'With a slight shift of her glasses,' the receptionist responded. "'That was it.' "'Mark looked back at his father, "'noticing for the first time a flicker of fear and shame in his eyes. "'It was an expression he'd rarely seen on the man "'who had always been his pillar of strength. "'Not taking his eyes off John, Mark dictated the address. Two Grand Drive, London.' "'The receptionist repeated the address.' "'writing it down and thanking him for his compliance. "'The tension in the air seemed to lift slightly, "'but the discomfort of the situation remained. "'Dad, let's go to my office where we can get you a drink,' Mark offered, "'guiding his father away from the lobby. "'Inside Mark's office, a simple room imbued with a sense of calm austerity, "'the air was heavy with anticipation. "'The office was decorated in a stately manner, "'with a dark mahogany desk at its heart.' On top of the desk was a beige and solid rectangular box with an inbuilt keyboard. On top of that, a bulky monitor. To the side, a tall matching bookshelf stood laden with a collection of technical manuals and reports. Mark was standing behind his desk, rubbing the mahogany surface under his palms as he gazed at his father. On the other side of the desk, John stood tall, albeit with a slight stoop that had come with age. He held a glass of water in his hand, his eyes reflecting a mix of concern and determination as he looked at his son. Taking a deep breath, Mark finally broke the silence. Dad, why did you come here? John sighed heavily, his eyes weary. I want my things back, Mark. Mark shook his head. Dad, they're artefacts of a bygone era. It's time you let go. The Ministry confiscated them for a reason. But they're not just artefacts. They're a part of me, John protested, his voice steady but filled with a quiet frustration. Dad, you have to understand the ministry's perspective here. They're relics of the past, hazardous according to them. It would be easier for both of us if you just let them go, Mark reasoned, trying to keep his voice steady and calm. John sighed again, this time with resignation. It's not just about the artifacts, Mark. It's about preserving our history, about truth and knowledge. You might be okay with the ministry dictating what we should and shouldn't know, But I'm not. Mark, trying to soften his voice, put forward a counter suggestion. Dad, have you ever considered retiring? I mean, you've done your part, you've served your time, and it might save you some trouble with the ministry. John's face hardened, the lines of his age seeming to deepen. Retiring, he scoffed, shaking his head. Mark, I've dedicated my life to uncovering and sharing the truth, not just for me, but for us, for you. "'for the memory of your grandfather.' His voice held a steely resolve. "'And I'll continue my pursuit, with or without your help.' John set his glass down on the desk, his gaze unwavering. "'Make sure you're on the right side, Mark.' Mark then watched his father leave his office, the echo of his words lingering in the air. A strange mix of emotions swirled within him. Surprise, fear, admiration for his father's steadfast determination and a sense of guilt for doubting his mission. After a moment's hesitation, Mark turned to one of the test terminals installed in his office. He needed to confirm that his father's quest was a dead end for himself. He started typing, his fingers shaking slightly, searching for evidence about the accident involving Robert Herold. However, he was met with a stark error. The file he was looking for simply wasn't there. The only display on the monitor was a flashing green text. Error 4. Zero, 4. Chapter 8. Archives. The familiar hum of the elevator that ran the height of the ministry complex had normally been a comfort to Mark, a slow break from the rushed pace of his daily life. Today, however, that same sluggishness only brought him a sense of anxiety. After failing to locate the crucial file on his grandfather's accident, Mark reasoned there must be a hard copy stashed away in the basement archives. He felt an odd thrill at the prospect of hunting it down, a missing piece that may finally bring his father closure. As the elevator descended below the ground floor, its normally soothing tone took on an eerie quality, the sounds seeming to echo the secrets buried deep within the building's underbelly. The descent was long, far longer than he expected. The doors opened with a hollow echo and Mark was immediately struck by the damp, chilled air that swept into the elevator car. It carried with it the faint aroma of old paper, dust, and a hint of mildew. He was standing on the threshold of the ministry's most neglected space, the basement archives. Mark stepped out onto the concrete floor, its surface damp and cold beneath his polished leather shoes. The lighting was sparse, dim fluorescents hung from the ceiling, their light barely enough to penetrate the gloom. The basement, in stark contrast to the main floors above, seemed untouched by the moving and modernization efforts, instead crumbling under the weight of time and neglect. Mark was not alone in the basement. At a simple desk, dwarfed by the hulking frame of a massive open vault door, sat a man in his fifties. Simon, the chief supervisor of the basement, was an unlikely figure to find in the ministry's underbelly. He had jet black hair, a charming smile, and an air of calm acceptance that softened his cold surroundings bit odd to see a technician down here in the archives, Simon remarked, eyeing Mark with a curious expression. The technicians, like Mark, rarely ventured down into the basement, preferring to interact with the Ministry's trove of information via the new, state-of-the-art system installed upstairs. The archives, for them, were a relic of a bygone era, inconvenient and unnecessary. Mark offered a nonchalant shrug, assuring Simon that his presence was strictly business. "'Investigating a file error on the new system,' he explained, "'trying to maintain an air of casual professionalism.' "'Simon chuckled lightly at the remark, nodding in understanding. "'I'm not one to stand in the way of progress,' he quipped, "'his smile growing wider. "'He gestured toward the vast vault behind him, "'the gateway to the archives, giving Mark a silent nod to proceed. "'Mark entered the vault, "'and it was as if he had stepped into a forgotten world.' His footsteps echoed in the quiet, reverberating off the high metal shelves that seemed to extend into infinity. It was a labyrinth of old filing cabinets, rows of shelving, and simple wooden desks at the end of each row. The scent of aging paper was stronger here, a testament to the countless stories and histories locked away in its depths. Mark knew that it would be significantly easier to ask Simon for assistance. The man had been working with these files for years, and surely knew the system like the back of his hand but he knew he had to be discreet, avoiding the involvement of anyone else in this personal quest. He noticed that the archive rows were meticulously organized into five-year blocks, each one carefully labeled. Starting from 1918, they stretched on and on, a timeline etched into the very fabric of the room all the way to the present day. Feeling a small surge of excitement, he ventured into the first row, the narrow and dimly lit aisle feeling increasingly claustrophobic, as he went further in. Finally, he reached the end of the aisle, and there he found the section labelled Occupation Records. Each subsection within the row was meticulously organised in alphabetical order. Initially, he looked under H for Herald, but to his disappointment, there was no result. It was a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack, but he wasn't about to give up so easily. Next, he moved on to the section for the British Army of the Rhine, which was further subdivided into smaller sections by region, Cologne, Dusseldorf, and Bonn. Each file was a thick treasure trove of bureaucratic information, and each one was teeming with untold stories and hidden truths. The Bonn file was decidedly smaller than those of the other cities, which seemed reasonable considering that Cologne was the principal city of occupation, and Dusseldorf was the industrial hub of the region. With a determined set to his jaw, Mark extracted the bond file from its slot and carried it over to the closest reading table. He carefully opened the thick file, its aged pages brittle under his touch. Mark began to scan the documents with impressive speed as he rifled through the incident reports. He encountered a multitude of records describing friendly fire accidents and equipment malfunctions, a sobering testament to the hazards of military life. But there was nothing, not a word, not a single line, "'related to Herald. "'His frustration mounted with each passing minute. "'Then, in a fit of frustration, he slammed the file shut. "'The noise echoed through the still basement archives, "'the sound stark in the otherwise silent room. "'He huffed as he got up, the bond file in hand, "'and trudged back to its slot in the row. "'But as he attempted to shove it back into its place, "'something hindered its path. "'Irritated, Mark pulled the file out again "'and peered into the slot.' There, jammed at the back, was a small, unassuming file. It was dark blue, and on the tab, there was no label, no indication of its contents. All it bore was a silver book emblem. Curiosity peaked, Mark carefully extricated the mysterious file from its wedged position. He turned it over in his hands, brow furrowing at the familiar silver symbol. There was only one way to find out what it contained. Just as Mark was about to examine the contents of the mysterious file, the echoing sound of voices reached his ears. They were approaching, growing louder and more discernible with each passing second. It wasn't Simon's voice but two others, unfamiliar and foreboding. Fearful that they could be librarians, Mark hastily stashed the blue file inside his jacket, shoving it down deep into the inner pocket. He darted off, seeking refuge behind the maze of cabinets, staying just out of their line of sight. He carefully peered around the corner of the first row, observing the two newcomers. They were both donned in blue trench coats, the uniform of the ministry's librarians, but their actions were far from orderly or respectful towards the accumulated history housed within the archive. As he carefully watched, Mark saw the two men carelessly dumping files from the far end of the vault into a silver container showing no regard for the documents they mishandled. The sight of the container struck a chord of familiarity in Mark. It was eerily similar to the one he had seen in the overseer's office. Sensing that his presence could be detected at any moment, Mark moved briskly towards the entrance of the vault. His heart pounded in his chest, echoing in his ears louder than the soft humming of the ageing fluorescent lights overhead. He could feel the blue file tucked inside his jacket, its weight a stark reminder of what he had just discovered. As he neared the entrance, Simon's desk came into view. Simon, as cheerful as ever, looked up from his work as Mark approached. His usual smile was welcoming. Did you find what you were looking for? Simon's voice echoed slightly in the cavernous archive, the innocent curiosity in his words doing little to soothe Mark's heightened nerves. No, it was a... a dead end, Mark managed to reply, trying to sound casual. His voice felt foreign to his own ears, but Simon seemed to take his words at face value, simply nodding in response. Without wasting another moment, Mark made his way towards the elevator, leaving Simon and the vault behind. As he ascended back to the world above, the blue file hidden in his jacket felt like a ticking time bomb, a secret that could change everything. Chapter 9. Resigned As the night began to fall and the London rain began to set in, John was busy at work in his small office at his family home. Every nook and corner was filled with books, memorabilia, and the accumulation of a life devoted to the pursuit of knowledge. The dim yellow glow of the lamp on the wooden table cast a warm, comforting light over the room, but the comfort it usually offered felt strange and out of place tonight. John was writing a letter, a very significant one, He was penning his resignation to the high school where he'd been teaching for years. He paused, his pen hovering over the piece of paper as he deliberated over the right words to convey his decision. His mind wandered back to the conversation he'd had with Mark earlier in the day, his son's words resonating in his head. Perhaps you should consider retiring. Mark's suggestion had stirred something within him. The idea that he was becoming old and possibly obsolete in the evolving world was a thought he had long been avoiding, but now it seemed to stare him in the face. It wasn't just Mark's words that pushed him towards this decision. The new world of teaching had become more bureaucratic and less personal. More emphasis was placed on testing and less on curiosity. The shift from traditional to modern felt overwhelming and unfamiliar. It seemed to John that the profession he loved was morphing into something he simply didn't recognise, The nib of his pen glided across the paper as he composed his resignation letter, every stroke echoing the finality of his decision. His heart ached as he penned the final lines. Finally John sat back in his chair, letter in hand. This was not just a resignation from his position, it was a resignation from a significant part of his identity. John was still holding the sealed envelope in his hands when a knock echoed through the house, interrupting the silence of the night. He rose from his chair, his joints creaking with the sudden movement, and made his way to the door. The knock repeated, more urgent this time, accompanied by the sound of the pouring rain outside. Opening the door, John found his son, Mark, standing on the doorstep, drenched and panting, holding a large umbrella that was failing to shield him from the heavy downpour. There was a certain intensity in Mark's gaze, a certain eagerness that seemed out of place on this gloomy night. "'Dad!' Mark began, his voice cutting through the noise of the rain. I need to talk to you. John attempted to tell him it was late, that this could wait until the morning, but something in Mark's voice and action stopped him. Something urgent, something important. You were right, Mark continued, his words coming out in a rush. The file was missing and I... I have something to show you. With that he held out a small dark blue file, its cover damp from the rain. There was no label on it, No identification of what it contained, only a silver book symbol stamped on its cover. It was opened slightly, revealing glimpses of the documents within. John took the file from Mark, confusion etched on his face. He motioned for Mark to come inside. He led Mark back to his study, casting a last look at the resignation letter on his desk, before he turned his attention to the mysterious file in his hands. The two men settled down in the warm confines of the study the rain pounding against the windows creating a drumming backdrop. John opened the dark blue file while Mark watched him, anticipation flickering in his eyes. The file was thin, the pages few, but their impact was immediately evident. At the top of each document was the emblem of the Bow, the British Army of the Rhine, instantly recognisable to John. Yet most of the text was obscured, black bars concealing the information beneath. Only a few words and phrases remained visible, their context lost amidst the redactions. John's eyes scanned the pages quickly until they landed on a list of names. His heart skipped a beat as he recognised one of them. Robert Harold. His father's name, clear as day, despite the rest of the information being concealed. A rush of exhilaration surged through him. He looked up at Mark, an excited gleam in his eyes. I knew you could do it, he said clapping mark on the back i knew it unable to contain his excitement he rushed out of the study to find bridget clutching the file in his hand as if it was a precious artifact left alone in the study mark leaned back in his chair trying to process what had just happened but it was not long until his thoughts were interrupted by a beep from his pager an unknown number had sent him a message 02017455628 who could it be Why was anyone contacting him at this late hour? With curiosity nagging at him, he decided to call the number. He moved to the kitchen, picked up the landline and started dialing. Each beep on the number pad echoed in the quiet room. The line rang for a moment before someone picked up on the other end. So it appears that you didn't hit a dead end, said a familiar voice. Taken aback by this unexpected call, Mark tried to keep his voice steady. I don't know what you're talking about. ''Relax, Mark,'' Simon said, his tone light-hearted. ''I'm not one of the Overseer's goons. I work in archives, remember? Well, at least I did until today.'' ''Confused,'' Mark asked. ''What's that supposed to mean?'' Simon paused before continuing. ''Turns out I'm no longer needed in the basement. I've been promoted to Chief of Administration at the Ministry's new headquarters. But that doesn't mean I didn't catch on to what those thugs were up to. I know they're burning the archives,'' material that I organised and guarded for years. His cheerful tone faded as the implications of what he was saying set in. I saw it too, Mark admitted. I know you did, friend. And that's why I looked up your files to contact you, Simon continued, his tone growing serious. You see, I think the ministry is up to something, and I think you know what. So I want in. Mark hesitated, his mind racing. I don't know anything, but... There is always a but... Simon jested. Mark couldn't help but laugh, some of the tension slipping away as he opened up. They didn't get everything. Simon's interest was piqued. A file? What was it? Mark paused, the weight of his decision heavy on his mind. I can't tell you. I'm still trying to figure out who I can trust. Simon took a moment to respond. Look, Mark, you've got a family, I assume, and you're trying to protect them. I would too, if I had anyone left, besides the old cat. He gave a small chuckle, but it was devoid of humour. Just tell me what I can do to help. Mark pondered for a while, gradually starting to trust in Simon's sincerity. An idea began to form in his mind. Not much you can do unless... you could get me to Germany. Simon didn't miss a beat. You know what, Mark? I think that request is right up my alley. Mark sounded sceptical. How? Simon chuckled again, this time with a note of excitement. You know better than anyone that the League is attempting to pull off this great reset in synchronization, and it turns out that the Brussels office is having recurring upload issues. The head office here is having kittens over it. It sounds to me like I could recommend sending an excellent young technician to Brussels to assist. Mark pulled the phone away from his ear for a moment. It was all falling into place, he thought, but one problem remained. What about John? Just then, he heard the sound of footsteps and the murmur of his mother and father's voices coming towards the kitchen. Mark quickly put the phone back to his ear. Simon, you're on to something, I'll call you later when I get home. He hung up just in time to place the receiver back on the hook as John entered the room. Mark, who was that? Were you just speaking to Liz? John asked, brimming with excitement. Mark hesitated, trying to formulate a response. It was a call from the administration office. Brussels is having upload issues. "'and they desperately need someone to go and resolve the problem,' he said slowly. "'I just thought that if I went and got some free time, "'I might go to Bonn on your behalf and investigate.' "'John's smile slightly dissipated. "'I love your newfound curiosity and enthusiasm, Mark, "'but there is no way I am letting you go alone,' he said with a steely resolve. "'I will be coming too.' "'Mark was taken aback. "'Dad, it's a work trip, not a family holiday.' What do you think the Ministry will think? And even if they agreed, why would I take you instead of, say, Liz and the girls? John paused, glancing at Bridget, as if searching for a solution. He looked back at Mark, who only managed a shrug in response. John placed a hand on his breast pocket, feeling the outline of his diary, the last fragments of his memory. At that moment, he knew the cover story. You're taking me because it will be my last chance to see Europe, he said quietly. I. I am losing my mind, and this is a son's last chance to do something special for his father. Bridget placed a hand on John's shoulder. John, John continued, it would be all true and verifiable. I have the doctor's diagnosis, and as of tomorrow I will no longer be an educator at West London High School. Mark stood frozen, his mind racing. Was his father lying? Then he remembered the incident from earlier in the day when John couldn't tell the receptionist his address. It wasn't out of pride or moral principle. It was simply because he didn't know. Mark then noticed the proud and strong man he admired struggling with the admission he had just made, his mother, the only force holding his father together. Without hesitation, Mark walked across the room and hugged his father, lending him his strength and allowing him to release the fear he so deeply felt. As the three heralds embraced, Mark said, choking back tears, Dad, you're coming with me. I'll make sure of it. Chapter 10 Brussels The following week was a whirlwind for Mark and John. Day after day, they tirelessly orchestrated what was necessary for their impending trip to Brussels. The day after John's startling admission, Mark took it upon himself to make Simon understand the severity of their circumstances. The situation demanded John's presence in Brussels and Mark managed to convey this with an intensity that even Simon couldn't ignore. Simon, although initially flustered and mildly irritated by the personal implications of Mark's request, found himself relenting later that day. He informed Mark that the head office had given their reluctant approval. Their pressing need for Mark's expertise in Brussels had outweighed any potential complications. John, on the other hand, was dealing with his own finalities. Finishing out the week, his last day fell on the last day of the term, the 29th of May, His resignation from the school marked the end of his long teaching career. The day was relatively low-key, not due to lack of respect or admiration, but because of its suddenness and John's own wish for a simple send-off. Meanwhile, Bridget, Elizabeth and the girls were charting their own little adventure, a camping trip to a familiar cabin in the Peak District National Park, just north of Buxton, planned for the first week of the school holidays during the men's absence. It was an attempt to maintain a semblance of normalcy and a family tradition. Brussels International Airport greeted the heralds with a symphony of organised chaos, embodying the quintessential nature of a European hub. The terminal was a gleaming cathedral of glass and steel, a tangible testament to Belgium's place in the interconnected world. As they navigated the corridors, the omnipresence of the League was striking. At security checkpoints, Alongside the expected contraband of knives and liquids, new prohibitions were showcased under the auspices of public safety, aged books, old artefacts and anything that might be deemed hazardous. The security personnel, embroidered with the Ministry's insignia, dutifully enforced this unexpected sanitization. In addition, prominently placed throughout the airport were starkly designed posters, their simple layout belying a profound message, Emblazoned in bold red letters against a stark grey background was the motto, One Truth, One Peace. The repetition of the phrase across various corners of the airport was unsettling, a constant reminder of the new world order the League intended to establish. Once out of the airport, the sprawling city of Brussels unfurled before them, bustling with life. The city was a beautiful amalgamation of history and modernity brimming with intricate Gothic spires that stood tall against the cobalt sky. However, the sense of omnipresence didn't fade as they embarked on their taxi ride. As the car cut through the city, more posters echoed the same motto, one truth, one peace, their intense red standing out against the city's blend of grey and colour. It was not long into the trip that the two men noticed an abrupt announcement, the taxi's radio chattering in the background in French, was interrupted by a formal announcement in English, the universal language of the League. The announcer's stale and baritone voice relayed the news. The great reset was now imminent, set to occur over the upcoming weekend. The news sent a ripple of apprehension through Mark, while John merely tightened his grip on his diary, a silent rebellion against the tide of erasure. Finally, they arrived at their modest two-bedroom apartment, nestled amidst a quiet side street, a slice of Brussels that seemed to promise them a haven from the city's watching eyes. As dawn broke over Brussels the next day, Mark made his way to the ministry office. The early morning sun lent a soft glow to the city, but did little to soften the stark brutality of the ministry's architecture. The imposing building loomed like a grey monolith against the rising sun, its concrete façade a harsh contrast to the charming cityscape. It was eerily similar to the London office, almost as if they were replicas of each other, standing out in blatant disregard for their surroundings. Slowly approaching the ministry building, Mark reflected on the fact that the building was not about appearances, it was about what lay within these monstrous structures. Each nation in the League had its own ministry, and each ministry had a watchful overseer. Each overseer maintained a database, a node in the intricate web of information that supported the digitization process. London, however, was unique. It was home to the master files of the Reset, the central hub from which all other nations drew their information. A fail-safe measure, ensuring that no single ministry could tamper with the information. The mantra, one truth, one peace, echoed in his mind as he entered the building. No sooner had he arrived, Mark was summoned to the office of the Brussels overseer. Sensing the urgency, he quickly walked to the elevator, pressing the button for the top office floor. As the doors slid open, he was greeted by a sight remarkably different from the old world charm of the London office. The Brussels Overseer's Office was a mirror image of the building's exterior, an ode to brutalism and efficiency. The room was a symphony of grey, with polished concrete walls and floors, adding a chilling austerity to the atmosphere. Dominating the space was a desk, devoid of any personal effects, that mirrored the angular precision of the room. However, What captured Mark's attention was not the Spartan décor, but what lay at the far end of the room. An enormous circular screen loomed large against the concrete backdrop, its flickering light casting an eerie glow. As Mark ventured closer to the imposing desk, a feeling of confusion washed over him. There was no one in the room to greet him. Instead, he was left in the company of a ghostly silence and a massive, faceless screen. Suddenly the room burst into life, as the large screen flickered into focus. A silhouetted figure appeared on the screen, its features unrecognisable, but its voice distinct, feminine and regal. Mr. Harold," the figure calmly stated. You probably did not imagine we would be crossing paths again so quickly. Mark instantly recognised the voice. Overseer Barrett, is that you? Your image is not too clear on this end, Mark replied, trying to make sense of the situation. Hence why you're here, Mr Harold," she retorted. These imbeciles had months to get this node online, and only days out from the Great Reset do they even bother to ask for assistance. Mark was taken aback. He could feel the weight of her impatience and mounting expectations. Right, he finally managed to respond. I better start by speaking to the regional overseer, to see where to start, that is. Overseer Jacobs will be of no use to you, Mr Harold." His incompetence has led to his termination by the League. I am now this Ministry's overseer, she declared, her words echoing ominously in the room. Before Mark could even process the implications of a British overseer controlling a foreign Ministry, she began issuing orders. You will start by checking the entire complex for connection failures. Following that, you will execute a hard reboot of the database to establish a node connection link. Oh, and one last thing, Mr Herald. The overseer's pause and intent, hanging in the air like a thick fog. I trust you won't forget what is at stake here. The world deserves to know the truth, and we cannot afford any setbacks now. Mark then recalled the images of the smouldering rubble he had seen in the Trinity photos, Berlin in ruins, and the elements inside Germany, which could be a potential threat to the great peace. He swallowed hard, then said, I won't leave a stone unturned, overseer. The figure, unmoved, responded, You are the key to this all going off without a hitch, Mr Harold. and just think, the sooner you have the job done, the sooner you and your ailing father can enjoy the sights. With that, the screen snapped to black, leaving Mark alone once more in the chillingly cold room. Chapter 11. The Sour Taste The next few days passed like the brisk European breeze, with Mark ensconced in his work. And John exploring the historical sites of Brussels. A retired history teacher with a hunger for knowledge, John was drawn to the city's many museums. They stood grand and impressive against the landscape of this modern city, holding tales of bravery, resilience and horrors of the Great War. Armed with a list of addresses Mark had given him, unknowingly put together with the help of Simon, John first made his way to the Royal Museum of the Armed Forces and military history. Next, he visited the House of European History and finally the Broodhuis at the magnificent Grand Palace. Each place held a unique piece of the past, a story waiting to be unveiled. From the heavily armoured vehicles that seemed to roar with a ghostly power to the uniforms once worn by soldiers stained with the muck of the trenches, each item told a tale. Alongside these potent objects were photos, aged images of young men with their comrades moments captured in time before many were sent off to perish. Then there were the letters, words filled with longing and love, hope and despair, forever frozen on paper. At every sight John was entranced, fascinated but also troubled, as part of him couldn't help but ponder the integrity of these exhibitions. How much of this history had been manicured and tampered with by the League and the Belgian ministry? How much truth was really left within these items and how much was twisted propaganda? These museums were a testament to the brutality of war, yet did they inadvertently serve the League's core narrative? The League had maintained a peace of a kind and length never seen in history, so were these reminders of a brutal era necessary to maintain that peace? Or was it just another strategy, a method to reinforce their centralized control? Despite his spiraling thoughts, John continued his tour through the city even stopping to purchase a book or two from the exhibits. He knew he would struggle to soak it all in, and if he could get it past airport security, the mementos would serve him well, especially when he would get to tell Bridget about everything he had seen. As dawn broke on a warm Friday morning, Mark found a sense of accomplishment washing over him. After burning the midnight oil, he had successfully re-established the vital link to London. Now, they were free to begin their journey to Bonn, aiming to return for their flights home on the following Monday. ''Well, Dad, this is it. Are you ready?'' Mark asked his father, as they enjoyed a European breakfast of fresh croissants, yoghurt and fruit. ''Absolutely. Our great journey awaits us,'' John replied with an explorer's enthusiasm, as if he was a character from an old adventure film. Mark laughed heartily at his father's antics. ''Plus,'' John continued, ''I better get out and get some real walking done soon,'' Your mother would kill me if she knew how much pastry I've eaten over the past few days. John joined in the laughter, rubbing his belly in good humour. With breakfast finished, they packed their belongings and made their way to the nearest train terminal. They weren't due in Bonn until the evening, so they decided to make a couple of stops along the way, first at the Liège Citadel and then a stop at Fort Eben Emael. Throughout the train journey, the pair maintained high spirits. They drank in the picturesque scenery of the Belgian countryside, a lush tapestry of woodland and rolling fields that seemed to go on forever. Perched high on a hill overlooking the city of Liège, the historic citadel had a commanding presence. Known as the Burning City's Balcony, it had witnessed numerous transformations over the centuries, each layer of history adding to its complex narrative. As they disembarked from the train and ambled up the winding paths, John and Mark admired the citadel's imposing stone walls, punctuated by moss-covered ramparts and ancient gun ports. As they climbed higher, the view expanded. Upon reaching the top, they were rewarded with a panorama of red rooftops, church steeples, the meandering Meuse River, and verdant hillsides on the horizon. They decided to rest for a while, enjoying a hot cup of coffee as they drank in the view. As they sat, they discussed the fort's historical significance. One of John's books explained that the citadel was a critical defensive structure during the Great War. In August 1914, as part of the Schlieffen Plan, the German army intended to sweep through Belgium swiftly to reach France. However, they hadn't anticipated the resistance they would face at Liège. The fort held out for 11 gruelling days and became a symbol of Belgian resilience and courage. As they started their descent along the pathway towards the station that would lead them onto to Fort Ebon email, Mark turned to his father and said, "'This has been great, Dad. "'We should have done this a long time ago, you know.' "'I know, Mark,' John replied with a tinge of guilt in his voice. "'I do regret not taking you or your mother on trips further than the cabin, "'but I'm glad that we are here now, and I have you to thank.' Mark, beaming at his father's acknowledgement, responded softly, looking forward down the path. And thank you, Simon, for this amazing itinerary. This comment caught John off guard. Who's Simon? he asked, a hint of curiosity in his voice. Mark hesitated for a moment before responding. Simon is a friend, a friend from work who helped plan the trip, that's all. John, sensing that there was more than Mark was letting on, stopped in his tracks and turned to his son. Let me get this straight, Mark. A random person in the ministry helped you arrange this trip and planned our travel schedule. He looked at Mark intensely. You didn't tell this, Simon. Why we were going to Bonn, did you? Mark hesitated again. Dad, it's not like that. Simon, he is like us. He knows the ministry is hiding something. John let out an exasperated sigh. Jesus Christ, Mark. And to think you accused me of putting too much faith in people. He stormed off leaving Mark behind, but Mark ran after him and grabbed his arm. Dad, calm down, Mark urged. Not everyone at the ministry is a librarian like the ones who took your stuff. Simon was looking after old records when I met him. That was when I found the file. John pulled his arm away from Mark's grip. All this information, Mark, is not the kind you keep from your father, especially when dealing with an organisation that thrives on manipulation. The two men found themselves locked in a familiar stare-down, a replay of the time they'd clashed in the living room of the Herald household. But this time, it was John who broke the silence. Look, I'm just going to go to the restroom, and I'll meet you back on the platform. We can talk about this later. With that, he turned and headed off to the station's restroom. As Mark sat alone on a faded metal bench at Platform A, he wrestled with the emotions of how such a great day had soured so quickly. Ten minutes later, The train pulled into the station. Looking around, he realized that he still couldn't see his father anywhere. With a sense of urgency, he sprinted towards the restrooms, pushing past a stream of confused tourists. Dad, John, the train is here, we have to go, he called out as he entered the restroom. But there was no reply. Frantically, Mark checked each stall, only to find the last one empty. And at that moment, a sense of dread washed over him as the realization set in. John was gone. Chapter 12. The Three Split Cities. Look, I'm just going to go to the restroom and I'll meet you back on the platform. We can talk about this later. Mark had no idea, but at that moment a storm was brewing in his father's mind. John had made a decision, a plan of his own, to deviate from the ministry-planned route. As he rounded the corner to the restrooms, he took a sharp turn, veering past them and towards the bus section of the terminal. As he made it down the stairs, His eyes scanned the bus signs hastily. Most were irrelevant, but one sign stood out. It read, Tour of the Three Split Cities. John's mind clicked. It must be a reference to Dusseldorf, Cologne, and most importantly, Bonn. John came to this conclusion as he recalled that the Rhine ran through all three of these locations, the river acting as a natural barrier and dividing line for the Great Walling Project. If his hunch was right, all he had to do was get on this bus and ride it to its final destination. With an adrenaline fueled scramble and a quick signing of documents, John hopped onto the bus and found a seat in the middle, a sea of unsuspecting tourists surrounding him. Let's see those ministry wankers track me now, he thought to himself, a smirk creeping onto his face. As the bus pulled away from the terminal and embarked on its journey, John made himself comfortable. A sense of satisfaction washed over him followed by an announcement over the speaker system from the tour guide. The words echoed through the bus in French, then in English. Welcome to the three split cities tour. My name is Louise. Our trip today will be five hours long. From here, it is an hour and a half to Dusseldorf. Then after a brief stop, it's another 45 minutes to Cologne. And after one longer stop, we will finish in Bonn, the smallest of the three cities. The announcement was music to John's ears, All he had to do was ride the tour to its conclusion. Settling into his seat, the warm June sun creeping in the window, he pulled out a small book he had purchased from one of the museums and delved into its pages, the words slowly trickling into his mind. A sudden jolt snapped John from a world of sleep. Blinking, he looked around and was bewildered by the surroundings. A creeping sense of unease spread through him. Where on earth am I? His mind grappled with confusion as his eyes darted around the unfamiliar scenery. He was on a bus, but why? And more importantly, where was Mark? His heart pounded in his chest as he glanced down at his lap and saw the book he had been reading. I must have been reading this when I drifted off. The realisation did little to soothe his rising panic. The nagging questions persisted. Why was he alone? Where in the hell was Mark? His mind felt like it was submerged in a fog, struggling to break through the surface. Glimpses of the previous days flickered in his memory like fragments of a shattered mirror. Reflexively, he found himself murmuring the mantra that had carried him through countless trials. Bridget, Mark. Yet the words hung in the air, doing little to illuminate his situation. Fighting the urge to panic, John clutched onto rationality with a vice-like grip. He was on a bus, so that would suggest that he must be going somewhere. Pushing down the unease, he moved to the front of the bus. There a young woman with golden hair and a glowing smile was perched behind the driver, a beacon in the confusion. Clad in a white uniform, she radiated an air of approachability. John made up his mind. He needed answers. "'Excuse me, miss,' he started, trying to keep his voice steady. "'Can you tell me where we are?' "'Certainly,' Louise responded, a touch of familiarity in her voice as she glanced at her list. You're John, aren't you? You didn't disembark at Dusseldorf. You looked so peaceful, so I didn't dare wake you. John merely nodded, pretending to follow along as if this was all part of his plan. We're about five minutes away from our next stop, and I must say it's quite the sight, you know. Cologne is the largest and most impressive of the three cities along the German border wall. Again, John found himself nodding. Thank you. Louise, I'll make sure not to miss it, he managed to reply his voice more composed than he felt. Making his way back to his seat, he began to process what he had learned. He was heading towards the German border wall, without Mark, and he had not gotten off at Dusseldorf. Their journey was now bringing them close to Cologne, the largest of the three cities. It had to be significant, but the weight of that significance eluded him. How is it important enough for me to be going there? He pondered, lost in his thoughts. And what about the third city, The gears in his mind continued to grind, the unanswered questions multiplying with each passing second. As John found himself engrossed in his diary, the bus slowed its pace and finally came to a halt. The terminal was situated right next to the glistening Rhine, with a large bridge dominating the view. Its strong green arches created a formidable silhouette against the blue canvas of the sky as it spanned across the river. ''Welcome to Cologne,'' Louise's voice echoed through the bus, pulling John's attention back to the present. To your right, you will see the hohenzollern Bridge. It is the only point of access from the League's occupied zone into Germany. All other bridges were demolished by the Germans after 1925 in an effort to protect their territories. We will disembark here at the terminal and begin the short walk to the Colner Dom. At her words, John turned his gaze to the opposite side of the bus towards the direction Louise had indicated. There... Standing tall against the backdrop of the city was an awe-inspiring sight. A gothic cathedral, the Colner Dom, pierced the horizon with its twin black spires reaching for the heavens. A murmur escaped John's lips, the words, ''Occupied zone'' faint in the air. Suddenly, understanding dawned on him like a sunrise after a dark night. ''Of course, I'm here to investigate my father's accident. ''I need to disembark here to follow the trail,'' he realised. With newfound resolve, John rose to his feet and joined the line of tourists making their way towards the exit. As he approached the front of the bus, he was met with Louise's cheerful gaze. Enjoy the sights, John. You won't regret getting off this time, she called out, her voice filled with enthusiasm. A grin stretched across John's face. I certainly will not, he replied. Once they disembarked, Louise began to herd the group towards the cathedral. John blended in, matching their pace until they were immersed in a sea of locals. As the group moved further, John slipped away into the bustling crowd, disappearing into a narrow side street. Slowly backing away, he spun around, and to his dismay, he was confronted with two enormous eyes. Another League poster, he thought to himself. This one bore under its eyes the caption, See the same truth, again in crimson red. Startled but resolute, John reached out and tore the poster from the wall. A satisfied smile danced on his lips. The smile shortly faded, however, as when he turned back to the street he was met with yet another pair of eyes. But these eyes were real, piercing and familiar. A dark blue coat, a clean crew cut, and an expressionless face. The man's words cut through the air. "'Sir, for defacing the League's property in the occupied zone, you will need to come with me immediately.' John froze, the thrill of his recent revelation replaced by a gripping fear. Just then, like a guardian angel, Louise appeared, concerned about John's sudden disappearance from the group. "'John, are you okay?' she called out, her voice echoing in the narrow alley. The librarian turned, his cold gaze landing on Louise. "'John,' he echoed, his voice filled with icy contempt. At that moment John saw his chance. As soon as the librarian was distracted by Louise, he sprang into action. With all the agility he could muster, he bolted down the alley, the librarian's shout of, ''Hey, you, stop immediately!'' echoing behind him. John navigated the winding cobblestone streets of Cologne, his adrenaline fueled sprint zigzagging him past the city's charming cafes, quaint shops and offices. His heart pounded in his chest, a wild rhythm that matched his frantic steps. John knew he couldn't keep up this pace for long. It had been years since he'd had to run like this, but to his advantage the plaza and its surrounding streets were a veritable labyrinth of historical relics. Mounds of ancient brown stone dotted the landscape, interspersed with more complex edifices featuring iron-barred windows and doors. Throngs of tourists huddled around these relics, their cameras flashing, as John darted around them, his goal to increase the distance between himself and his pursuer. Getting to his limit, John quickly steered himself towards an old market square as fatigue started to creep into his legs. Spotting a centuries-old stone fountain in the centre of the square, John decided it was time to adopt a more covert approach. Around the fountain was a group of elderly citizens engrossed in feeding the fluttering pigeons. Slowing his pace, John nonchalantly approached the group and asked a bald, slightly overweight man if he could borrow the newspaper he was reading. The man looked at John then back at the newspaper, and then back at John. His eyes widened with understanding. Sit down, he said in broken English. Grateful, John slid onto the bench and raised the large newspaper, hiding his torso behind the broadsheet. The thundering footsteps of the librarian drew nearer, sending a chill down John's spine. He held his breath as the sound reached a crescendo and then, like the fading wail of an ambulance siren, retreated into the distance. John lowered the newspaper and turned to his accomplice, a look of gratitude and confusion etched on his face. The man merely smiled and muttered a single word, this time in French, "Branleurs." Not entirely sure of its meaning, John shook the man's hand, thankful for the intervention, and made his way back to the bus terminal. As he walked, panting heavily from the unexpected chase, he chastised himself. God, you're an idiot. Only now had he realised that, In his haste to explore the city, he had left his bags on the bus. If he was going to stay here, he'd need the contents of those bags. Approaching the terminal cautiously, he peeked around the corner of a nearby building, his eyes immediately finding the familiar silhouette of the bus. Just as he had hoped, it appeared that his pursuer was off his trail, and with a slight sense of relief, John began moving towards the bus. As he approached it, his hand reached under the bumper to press the emergency door release. He wasn't sure how he knew about its existence. It felt instinctual, as though he'd seen it done somewhere before, multiple times. The bus door creaked open and John quickly slid inside, his eyes instantly locating his backpack and overnight bag. Swiftly and silently, he retrieved his belongings and made his way back to the front of the bus. No sooner had he stepped onto the pavement than he heard the screeching of tyres, Two dark blue sedans came careening into the terminal car park, kicking up clouds of dust. His heart pounded against his ribcage as four men, clad in the unmistakable uniform of the librarians, sprang out of the vehicles, their faces set in grim determination. They spread out surrounding the bus. One of them, a smaller man with a clean-shaven face and the same familiar crew cut, stood at the forefront. His voice rang out in the near-empty terminal. John Harold." John froze, his blood turning to ice in his veins. His bag slipped from his grasp, thudding against the pavement as he slowly raised his hands in surrender. With a sigh that came from deep within his chest, he muttered, Shit. Chapter 13, Bon The moment the iron grip of the librarian closed around his arm, John was flooded with a sense of resignation. This was it. There was no escaping now. Surrounded, he was escorted to one of the dark blue sedans, The convoy roared to life, a snake of steel and chrome winding its way through the cobblestone streets of Cologne. Their destination soon loomed ahead, a large six-level red brick structure, monolithic in its presence against the cityscape. The building was as cold and impersonal as the librarians, its starkness heightened by the looming presence of the Kolner Dom Cathedral nearby. Inside the police station, the warm breeze of the outside air was replaced by a sense of stifled order, the air heavy with the hum of activity and the underlying anxiety of law enforcement. The lobby was filled with uniformed personnel, their stern faces a mirror of the situation at hand. Suddenly, amidst the sea of strangers, a familiar face appeared. "'Dad!' Mark exclaimed, relief flooding his voice as he hurriedly made his way over. His brow furrowed with concern and frustration He studied his father's face. Are you okay? What were you thinking, running off like that? Mark's words cut through the fog that had been clouding John's mind. The pieces of the puzzle started to fall into place. He remembered leaving Mark at the Citadel after he discovered Simon's involvement. He wasn't supposed to be in Cologne at all. The bewilderment on John's face was not lost on Mark, who quickly turned his attention to the librarian who was in the lead. Thanks for the assist. I'll take it from here. His voice was firm, resolute. The man responded with a cold stare. Just make sure he stays out of trouble. With that, the librarians retreated, leaving father and son in the lobby. Mark gently ushered John towards the door, guiding him out onto the street, where a small European rental car awaited them, parked inconspicuously adjacent to the police station. The slamming of car doors echoed in the still air of the sheltered street a loud exclamation that seemed to amplify the tension between John and Mark. Mark buried himself in the logbook of the rental car, the steady scratch of his pen a stark contrast to the heavy silence. John cleared his throat, struggling to find the words to make sense of his actions. "'Mark, I!' he began, but he was cut off by his son's sharp interruption. "'Save it, Dad. All you had to do was trust me, but no, once again you think you're the smartest guy in the room.' Mark's words stung more than he cared to admit. The silence that followed was unbearable, the air heavy with unspoken words and strained emotions. Mark didn't stop there. It's just lucky that the Ministry flagged your position, and Simon paged me when he did. I was on my way to Bonn and had only stopped in Cologne to get gas. I had exactly zero idea where you were. The mention of Simon's name caught John's attention. His initial mistrust and scepticism towards the man was now a cause for embarrassment. He found himself reconsidering his judgment. With a deep swallow, John managed to find his voice again. You are right, Mark. I was wrong for leaving you at the Citadel. And as for Simon, I trust your judgment. I have to. Without you, I never would have made it this far. His words were sincere, filled with a humble acknowledgement of his mistakes. The tension in the car was palpable as Mark fired up the engine his gaze fixed on the road ahead. Suddenly, John opened the car door and stepped out. Dad, are you serious? Mark's exasperation echoed in the vehicle. Before Mark could finish his sentence, John had hopped into the back seat, flicking the child lock on the door and wearing a mischievous grin. That should do the trick, he declared, attempting to suppress his own laughter. His typical dad joke seemed to do the trick, as Mark couldn't help but crack a smile. He shook his head, looking at John in the rearview mirror. "'God, you're annoying,' he grumbled, trying and failing to suppress his amusement. The drive to Bonn was a quiet one, the tension between John and Mark slowly dissipating with each passing kilometre. As they reached the outskirts of the city, they were met with a stark contrast to the bustling streets of Cologne. Bonn was a town at the end of the line, a place falling into slow dilapidation. There were no grand bridges or impressive industries, no cultural splendour to speak of. Also, the presence of the ministry seemed faded, their propaganda relegated to old posters and billboards that were as neglected as the town itself. It was a shell of a place, forgotten by time and change. Their destination was a small hotel by the Rhine, known as Baden. The establishment looked as though it hadn't seen visitors in months, its hosts shocked but welcoming at the sight of their guests. It was a quiet place, matching the overall feeling of the city. After settling into their respective rooms, they finally decided to venture down to the hotel's dining area for dinner. The clock on the wall read six o'clock as they made their way down, the setting sun casting long shadows through the windows. The dining area was empty, save for a few sorry-looking locals propped up at the bar. As they took a seat in the near silent room, John and Mark shared a glance. It was going to be a long night in the forgotten town of Bonn. Amidst the aroma of warm pies and mashed potatoes, John and Mark sat huddled together, deep in a discussion. Mark asked for the photo, one John had been carrying in his diary, a relic from Robert's past. In the image, Robert and his unit buddies were all smiles, posing before a quaint German cottage, its green hedges crawling up the walls, simple planter boxes punctuating each windowsill. Mark studied the image closely. This place could literally be any building here, he sighed, feeling deflated. John reached out and took back the photo, scanning it once more. His eyes stopped at the tree in the coat of arms near the door. What about this, he pointed out, Hope colouring his voice. Mark shrugged. It's not like I can just look it up in a database. John, unfazed by Mark's scepticism, decided on another course of action. Time to go to a secondary source he declared, pushing his chair back with a clatter that echoed in the silent room. He made his way to the bar, photo in hand, and sought help from the young bartender. The man scanned the image but shrugged apologetically. No, sorry, can't say I have. John sighed heavily, placing the photo on the bar. Just as he was about to give up, an older man sitting next to him spoke up. Give us a look. With nothing to lose, John handed him the photo. The old man scrutinised the image before a spark of recognition flashed in his eyes. Now that's a watering hole I have not seen in a long time, he reminisced, finishing off his stein. John perked up. Wait, you visited this place. Religiously, until the old owner went bankrupt, the old man revealed. It's called the Zur Lindenwirtin, a pub, not a fifteen minute walk from here. A wave of relief washed over John. Brilliant, he said. Would anybody be there? The old man shrugged. I think his son Arnold still lives there, doesn't do anything with the property, so you might want to knock real hard on the door when you get there. Chapter 14 The Family Tree After speaking with the old man, John and Mark decided to finish off their meals and set off for the old pub before darkness fell that evening. As they navigated the neglected streets of Bonn, sidestepping piles of rubbish and large potholes, the world around them felt abandoned, How could a city fall so far from grace, and just how much of it was the fault of the brutal line of division that flowed through the centre of town? Following the old man's directions, they found themselves standing in front of a building that matched the one in the photo. Though its windows were boarded up and the hedges overgrown, it held the same familiar charm. Brushing aside the vegetation near the entrance, Mark found the marker, a metal and wooden coat of arms bearing a tree. This is the place." Mark announced. John approached the door, wrapping his knuckles against the wood. "'Hello,' he called, listening for any response. When none came, he knocked again, louder this time. "'Hello. I'm looking for an Arnold.' After a moment they heard the faint sound of footsteps descending from the second floor. A series of locks clicked open, and a wary face appeared in the gap of the slightly ajar door. "'I'm Arnold. What do you want?' John took a breath, "'choosing his words carefully. "'I was hoping you might be able to answer some questions "'about the history of this place.' "'Arnold's eyes narrowed. "'Look, old man, this isn't a museum. "'It's not even a pub anymore. "'Why don't you just leave me alone?' "'But as he moved to close the door, "'John's boot wedged it open. "'Arnold,' John implored, "'I don't want to waste your time. "'Could you at least tell me where your father lives? "'It's really important that I get some answers.' "'Arnold paused. "'That's going to be impossible.' He died four years ago. John froze, the news hitting him like a jolt. Arnold studied him. Did you know him? John shook his head. No, but he might have known my father. He withdrew his boot from the door, allowing it to close, but after a moment the locks clicked once again and the door opened wider. Arnold then gestured for them to come inside. The trio proceeded into the main hall of the house and followed Arnold up a creaking staircase to the living quarters on the second floor. The home was a stark contrast to the mild evening, its interior cold and slightly damp. They stepped warily, mindful of the groaning steps that seemed to sag under their weight. As they reached the main area, the soft crackling of a roaring fire greeted them. Its warmth quickly dispelled the chill, wrapping the room in a welcoming heat. Arnold cleared a pair of chairs at the dining table, pushing aside empty whiskey bottles before dragging the seats over to the fire. The flames flickered off the worn fabric of a nearby armchair, beckoning them to sit. Under the fire's glow, Arnold's features came into sharper focus. He was thin, nearly skeletal, with long blonde hair and an unkempt beard. His sunken eyes appeared haunted, and it was clear that he was older than Mark, likely in his late fifties. With a wave of his hand and a sarcastic tone, Arnold welcomed them. Welcome to my humble abode. John, ignoring the sarcasm, responded, As I said outside, my son Mark and I are hoping you could enlighten us on the history of this place. We were hoping to speak to your father, but I assume he may have passed on some of that knowledge to you. Arnold sank into his chair, a far-off look in his eyes. Depends on what you need to know. Mark spoke up, eager to find a breakthrough in their investigation. Was your family in possession of this pub during the Great War? "'My grandfather might have been here,' Arnold chuckled, "'leaning over to retrieve another whiskey bottle "'from the floor. "'Shit, now that's a long time ago. "'But you're in luck. "'My family built this place back in the late 1800s "'when it was still a part of Germany. "'He took a long swig from the bottle. "'My dad was about 15 when the Kaiser abdicated, "'and the provisional government sued for peace. "'Lucky thing, too. "'He'd have been called up for sure "'if the Entente had decided to march on Berlin.' John murmured in agreement. That is lucky. But don't get me wrong, Arnold continued. It was far from a picnic. With Bonn torn in two during the occupation and then permanently divided after the walling project, my family faced a tough decision. Stay with the business in the occupied zone and renounce our German heritage or abandon the pub and flee across the river. Growing impatient, Mark interrupted. Is this going somewhere? Do you want the history or not? Arnold replied, holding up the whiskey bottle in offer. When Mark declined, he shrugged. Anyway, it's no mystery that we decided to stay. And yes, my dad did tell me about the soldiers who used to come here during the early days of the occupation. He said they were decent blokes. Hope sparked in John's eyes. Any chance you remember any names? Dad never mentioned any, Arnold replied, taking another sip from the bottle. All he said was they'd go on patrol every few days into the Rhineland and then return here for a beer. Well, at least that is what they did until they stopped coming. They left, John questioned, leaning forward in anticipation. Arnold shook his head, a sombre expression on his face. Nah, they just never came back from patrol. John shared a meaningful look with Mark, his eyes reflecting the thoughts he didn't dare to voice. Mark objected instantly. Oh no, we are not crossing into Germany. This trip was about getting to Bonn, not breaching a hostile nation. John remained undeterred. What do you mean, hostile? They walled themselves off to preserve the peace, remember? Who knows, it could be a utopia over there. Mark glanced towards Arnold, debating whether to divulge the secret gnawing at him in front of this stranger. He finally turned back to his father. Look, all I'm saying is there's no way in. The only crossing was back at Cologne. Arnold coughed, drawing their attention. You can just do what everyone else does. John and Mark both turned to Arnold, exchanging confused glances as they waited for the punchline. "'Everyone else?' John asked, his brow furrowed in thought. Arnold chuckled. "'Well, by everyone I mean the drug-runners, the desperate and the destitute. Those poor bastards swim!' Mark rose from his chair, his frustration finally boiling over. "'This is getting ridiculous. Thanks for the story, but it's getting late, and we don't want to get mugged on the way back. "'Dad!' I'll be outside. Without waiting for a reply, he turned and left the room. John rose slowly and extended a hand towards Arnold. As they shook hands, he held on to Arnold's grasp, seeking answers. How did your father die? Arnold sighed, his gaze drifting to the fire. Bladder cancer. There's no welfare out here, especially not for non-citizens. We leveraged this place to the hilt, trying to get Dad the treatment he needed. But in the end, it just destroyed his legacy. "'John's eyes welled up with emotion, his thoughts whirling. "'And left you like this?' "'Arnold withdrew his hand, turning away from John's sympathetic gaze. "'Shit just happens, I guess.' "'With that, John left the room, leaving Arnold alone with his thoughts "'and the dying embers of the fire. "'Chapter 15. The Crossing.' "'Back in the quiet confines of their hotel rooms, "'John and Mark found themselves deep in thought.' Each man was caught in the grip of a looming decision, like a chess player contemplating a risky move. The clues they had gathered so far were like breadcrumbs scattered on a forest floor, leading them into the unknown. The question was, should they allow the trail to run cold, or muster the courage to follow these clues beyond the wall? In his room, Mark dialed his wife Elizabeth. The familiar voices of his wife and children filled the room, painting pictures of joy and laughter in the cabin back home. He listened to their tales of bushwalking adventures, shared stories around the campfire and the delightful chaos of marshmallow cooking. He missed his family, missed being part of those little moments, but the voices on the other end filled his heart with joy. On the other side of the paper-thin wall, John sat alone in his room, his heart echoing the painful contrast of Mark's conversation. The muffled laughter seeping through the wall only served to amplify his loneliness, Yet again, he found himself pouring his heart out onto paper, crafting a letter filled with words he couldn't speak aloud. Once he was done, he carefully placed it in a plain envelope and sealed it, the taste of the adhesive bitter on his tongue. A heavy sigh escaped him as he closed his eyes, a silent prayer following the breath. Just then, he heard the soft click of the phone being hung up, and the hum of conversation from Mark's room ceased. It was then John rose from his seat and ventured into the hallway. He rapped softly on Mark's door, waiting for his son to answer. The door creaked open, revealing Mark, his face still lit with the afterglow of his conversation with his family. Dad, what is it? he asked. John steeled himself, his features set in a grim expression. Mark, I promised you that I would never run off on you again, he began. So that is why I am telling you now that I am going to make the crossing tonight. I don't expect you to come, but this is something I have to do. Mark was silent, watching his father as he continued. I know that it could be a complete dead end, but... I have to try, and what's more is that I can't wait. My memory is getting worse with every sleep. I will make the crossing, get my fill, and be back before sunrise. The words hung in the air between them like a tangible weight, forcing Mark to grapple with the reality of their situation. He paused... "'struggling to find the right words. "'Then slowly he lifted a hand "'and placed it on his father's shoulder. "'Dad, I cannot begin to know what you're going through. "'Your independence, your memory. "'It's all slipping away,' he said, "'his voice thick with emotion. "'But I do know that I promised you "'that we would do this together. "'That's how we started it, "'and that's how we'll finish it.' "'A small smile tugged at the corner of John's lips. "'He placed his hand over Mark's "'and gave it a grateful squeeze.' "'Our journey awaits,' he said, the words sounding like a decree, the continuing of an epic tale. There was little time for preparations, yet the men were swift and efficient. They studied a local map of the area and decided that the best place to cross the river was at one of its narrowest points, near the Pariser Platz. According to the scale of the map, the swim would be about 400 metres, and with a predictable current speed of roughly 1 to 2 kilometres per hour, they would need to steal themselves for at least a 12-minute swim. It was a daunting task, but both men were determined. It was nine o'clock when the two men left the hotel. By this time, Bonn had transformed into a ghost town, its streets shrouded in darkness and devoid of any sign of life. They traversed the same dilapidated streets they had walked earlier, sticking to the shadows as they tried to avoid the occasional patrols of occupation law enforcement. While navigating through the deserted streets of Bonn, John's keen eyes landed on an object he had been searching for. An old public mailbox, worn down and rusted from years of exposure, stood like a silent sentry against the wall of a nearby post office building. Peeling away from Mark, he darted across the road to the mailbox. Unbeknownst to him, Mark had continued on their path, his focus on their destination. It wasn't until he had advanced several paces that he realised his father was no longer at his side. Twisting around, he saw John by the mailbox, rummaging through his backpack. A surge of frustration bubbled within him and he let out a hushed whisper, piercing the silent night. Dad, what on earth are you doing? Ignoring his son's exasperated question, John pulled out the plain envelope he had sealed earlier. With a swift motion, he slid it into the mailbox's slot the metallic clang echoing faintly in the quiet. As he turned back to Mark, he hurriedly called out, I'm coming, I'm coming. He hastened his steps, quickly closing the distance between them. Shrouded by the veil of the night, the two men huddled on the riverbank, their hearts pounding a relentless rhythm in their chests. Dull moonlight danced upon the water's brown surface, intermittently revealing ominous silhouettes of passing boats with their glaring spotlights. Time was of the essence, and they knew they had to act. Nervous determination fueled their movements as they swiftly prepared their improvised flotation devices. Stripping down to their boxer shorts, they folded their clothes and shoes into the backpacks. Next, they took two garbage bags they had procured from the hotel and placed the backpacks inside. Finally, filling the bags with as much air as possible, they sealed them tight. The result was what looked like two black balls of trash, ugly but buoyant. Wading into the frigid, rippling waters, adrenaline surged through their veins like wildfire. The current was slow, as was expected, but it clawed at their legs, attempting to undermine their resolve. As the cold water lapped at their knees, they waited for the perfect moment to submerge, timing their entry with the next passing boats. The crossing initially went smoothly, both men making steady progress towards the distant shore. However, around eight minutes in and over halfway across, John's strokes began to falter, his pace reduced to a meandering paddle, and the threat of the next patrol boat loomed ominously as it moved into view. Mark could do little to assist, and John, using precious energy, silently gestured for him to push on. The voices of crewmen aboard the approaching boat were beginning to grow clearer, the probing spotlight scanning the murky water. John knew he wasn't going to make it. In a desperate bid to avoid detection, he pushed his bag towards the path of the incoming boat. Bereaved of his makeshift raft, John paddled frantically towards the shore. Simultaneously, the floating bundle of rubbish successfully caught the boat's attention, the spotlight fixating on the strange object. However, despite his heroics and just as the shore was within sight, reality set in. A crippling cramp seized John's body, the pain causing him to sink beneath the water's dark surface. As his bare feet encountered the slimy riverbed, he felt a sense of entrapment. Come on, you old bastard, he thought to himself as he battled the cold and slimy bottom of the Rhine, on last effort. But no matter the mental strength, no matter the stubborn will, John's body could not prevail. Suddenly a strong hand latched onto his shoulder, hoisting him back to the surface. It was Mark. He had abandoned his bag ashore and plunged into the river after his father, pulling him back to the shoreline. Upon reaching the bank, John spluttered and choked, gasping for breath. Mark quickly manoeuvred him into the recovery position, trying to keep him calm. Dad, you got this, stay with me, he urged. After a violent bout of coughing, John managed to expel a final mouthful of water. In a stroke of good fortune, their commotion went unnoticed, thanks to the boat's chugging diesel engine but Mark knew their luck would not hold. Grabbing the remaining bag and hoisting his father up, the two men stumbled into the undergrowth, the woodland hill looming before them. The climb was steep, but once John regained his breath, he found the solid terrain more familiar, even comforting. The dense, unkept undergrowth snapped and cracked as they pushed it aside on their ascent. Silently, unsure of what they might encounter, they pushed on towards their planned checkpoint. As they broke through the undergrowth, an elaborate medieval castle came into view, the Schloss Drachenberg. Its imposing crumbling stone façade stood weathered but strong, and its gothic turrets pierced the darkness. The windows, like hollow eyes, stared blankly down at them, not a light to be seen. In this moonlit majesty, the castle breathed an air of old authority. Approaching the building from the south side entrance, they observed still no lights or signs of life. The pair navigated through the expansive courtyard and arrived at a set of grand wooden doors. Mark, convinced they were now alone, readied himself to shatter the lock with a single swift kick. However, he was interrupted by a stern glance from John. Still drenched from their river crossing, the two men, clad only in boxer briefs, locked eyes. Mark finally broke the silence. "'Get out of the way, Dad,' urging his father to step aside. Instead, John swiftly twisted the handle and the massive door creaked open, its weight echoed in the silent courtyard. Slightly embarrassed, Mark pushed past his smirking father into the depths of the castle. Navigating the castle's vast halls without the aid of electric lighting or any lighting at all, for that matter, proved challenging. Let's find a bedroom, get you some clothes, and I can get changed too, Mark suggested. No way we are exploring Germany naked, John agreed, indicating they should venture upstairs. The deeper they delved into the castle, the more apparent it became that the place hadn't been entirely abandoned since the occupation. Though dust and cobwebs hinted at neglect, there were also signs of recent structural repairs. The pair eventually discovered a bedroom, slowly moving into the room, the moonlight providing much-needed illumination. Mark began rummaging through their bag. He retrieved a towel to dry off before changing, then passing the same towel to John. Luckily for John, he was able to find a simple brown shirt and dark green pants in a trunk at the foot of the bed. They were a few sizes too large, but better than nothing. Unfortunately, there were no shoes, not even a pair of socks. Just as John closed the trunk, they heard a noise, creaking wood flooring and the shifting of furniture. Silently, they decided to investigate. A door at the far end of the hallway was now ajar, revealing a flickering light. Edging closer, they saw a small fire crackling in a grand stone fireplace. As they entered the room, they began calling out tentative hellos, insisting they meant no harm. "'What if they don't speak English?' Mark whispered to John. John shrugged. "'It's pretty damn close. I'm sure they can work it out.' Despite the lack of response, the room didn't feel abandoned. Food scraps lay scattered around and bottles of alcohol appear to be half-finished. Confused, Mark suggested, looks like we scared them off. Regardless, John stated, we shouldn't overstay our welcome. As they turned to leave, the silence shattered. Now, a voice commanded. In an instant, the light from the fire was extinguished, and rough sacks were thrust over their heads. Next, the men's feet were kicked out from beneath them, sending them crashing onto the cold wooden floor below. Tie them up! the same voice ordered. As rough hands began to bind their wrists and ankles, John protested vehemently. What do you think you're doing? Take your hands off my son. Mark echoed his father's cries, but to no avail. Suddenly, they were hoisted over powerful shoulders and carried from the room. The sound of the door slamming echoed ominously through the castle's halls. Chapter 16. The Revolution. When the sacks were finally removed, It revealed a blinding light that sent their eyes squinting and blinking. As their vision began to adjust, a tall grey figure paced in front of them. Bound to chairs now, the men watched the figure in silence as it finally spoke. The voice, deep and resonant, filled the room. What is your objective and who sent you? John, still trying to regain his bearings fully, replied in confusion. Objective. You've got it all wrong. "'We don't work for anybody.' "'The grey blur was starting to resolve itself "'into an imposing figure in a grey jumpsuit, "'the face weathered, deeply lined, "'a testament of hard life.' "'The figure laughed, "'a harsh sound echoing in the dimly lit room. "'Ha, you're certainly not the normal drug-runner types, "'so my guess is that you're spies for the League.' "'John located Mark with his gaze. "'Mark, are you all right?' "'He felt a flicker of relief as Mark nodded, "'albeit fearfully.' The man interrupted their moment. He'll be all right as long as you keep talking, old man. Taking in the sight of the man, now in full focus, John took a shot at understanding their predicament. Wait, you said something about the League. Do you mean the League of Nations? Our oppressors. That's what I mean, the man spat, his disdain palpable. John held his gaze steady, trying to pacify the situation. Look, Mr... The man spoke curtly. Gunther's my name. John took a deep breath. "'Gunther, you've got us all wrong. "'My name is John Harold, and this is my son Mark. "'We've no business spying for the League. "'In fact, they'd be furious to know we're here.' "'Ignoring John's plea, Gunther moved over to the fireplace. "'From the glowing coals he picked up a fire poker "'and brandished it near Mark's face. "'Well, John, this story of yours better be good, "'or your son here is going to tell me "'exactly what I want to know,' he threatened. "'John, panic seeping into his voice, spoke quickly. "'Okay, okay.' We are investigating my father's death. He was stationed in the Rhine during the occupation and the facts we've uncovered lead us to believe he was killed, not by accident, but in a cover-up. Our trail went cold in Bonn, so we made the, some would say, the idiotic choice to cross the river into Germany. At this, Gunther withdrew the poker from Mark's face. You're right, my friend, that was idiotic. He signalled and two men emerged from the shadows, brandishing large knives. No, wait! John yelled in desperation, bracing himself for the worst. But the expected slice to his neck never came. Instead, he felt the pressure around his wrists and ankles ease as the ropes were cut free. With his back still turned to them, Gunther asked, So your father was in the bow? Specifically stationed in Bonn, you said. John, his heart pounding with relief, managed a shaky, Yes. Mr. Harold, Gunther said, turning back to face them. All I can tell you is that your father died in no accident. He was executed. Mark, finding his voice, stammered. Executed. By who? The enemy. Gunther replied with a grim finality. No, the League. John was speechless. This imposing stranger seemed to hold answers that he'd been seeking for so long. But who was he? And how could he know such a terrible truth? Mark broke the silence, his voice laced with doubt. Dad. How do we know they're telling the truth? They're clearly not law enforcement. They could be thugs, hell, even terrorists. Terrorists, Gunther replied, an intrigued smile forming on his lips. That's oddly specific for a young man so out of the loop. Mark held Gunther's gaze. I'm talking about Berlin. John, unable to follow their cryptic exchange, shot Mark a confused glance. Gunther chuckled, enjoying the unfolding drama. This is getting interesting. So many threads to pull, and yet you're both completely blind. John didn't find the situation amusing. His voice held a note of desperation. Look, Gunther, we don't have a lot of time. Either let us go, or enlighten us. Gunther shook his head, his expression hardening. Oh, I'm not letting you go. I have a feeling you two are going to be very useful. Pulling up a chair, Gunther sat down, his large arms draping over the backrest. Fifty-six years ago, the occupation of the losers of the Great War began. What most people in the outside world don't know is that the occupation never ended. From what I've been told, it wasn't planned that way, but little by little, emergency powers and surveillance were never rolled back. He paused, taking out an old packet of cigarettes. Shit. Only two left. Ignoring their captivated stares, he lit a cigarette and continued... The tipping point happened in 1923. There was an uprising in Munich led by a group of mostly ex-military men calling themselves the National Socialist German Workers' Party. They captured the heads of government in Bavaria and threatened to spark a rebellion against the League that would spread all the way to Berlin. John interrupted. Then what happened? Gunther, taking a long drag from his cigarette, answered, The League had enough. That's what happened. In 1923, its authority was weak and America was withdrawing from Europe. That all changed with the core narrative, Wilson's plan for eternal peace. The League needed to prove it could prevent Europe from collapsing into chaos again, so it chose to crush the rebellion. The Nazis were wiped out by the hundreds, and examples were made of the leaders in public squares. The occupation forces included, I assume, your father, that refused to comply with the League's interventions, were labelled as traitors and purged with the rest. John was silent, tears forming in his eyes. Dear God, he whispered. Mark stared at Gunther, disbelief washing over him. Wait, but what about the men who complied? So many soldiers came home. How did they keep a secret like this? Gunther's reply was nonchalant. From what my sources tell me, most of them got plum jobs in a new organisation called the Ministry of the Corps narrative. The pieces were starting to form a horrifying picture, But Mark refused to accept it. So, what does that make you? A rebel? Are you a Nazi? Gunther finished his cigarette, chuckling at Mark's question. Nazis, no. We're our own pitiful resistance. Our concern isn't with race, nationalism or territorial expansion. We simply want choice. Choice? Mark echoed, his eyebrows furrowing in confusion. Gunther's tone turned somber. A choice to read what I like, to say what I feel, to have a family. His words trailed off, his usually composed demeanour crumbling for a moment. He quickly recovered, crushing the butt of his cigarette under his boot. My parents were part of the last generation permitted to have families. My daughter, however, was part of the first to be taken by the state. Here, all births are suppressed and monitored. New children are taken from birth to be raised under the Overseer Care Programme. The split was so traumatic, my wife... My wife decided life was simply not worth living. The revelation hung heavy in the cold basement. Gunther's personal pain, the oppression he and his people faced, it was a stark contrast to the image of progress and peace the League propagated. Mark, feeling a sense of conviction in Gunther's words, ventured to ask the burning question, Gunther, I have to ask, were the rebels involved in the Berlin accident? John, taken aback, turned to Mark. Berlin? Accident. Mark, what are you talking about? Gunther, sensing the tension, focused his gaze on John. It appears your boy's got a secret, old man, a truth that I assume is not yet fully formed. Mark took a deep breath, his eyes locked on John's. He could no longer withhold the information. I've seen proof of Berlin in ruins, the Brandenburg Gate melted and covered in flames. I also have it on good authority that the explosion was caused by corruption, maybe even sabotage. John stared at Mark his face a mirror of bewilderment. The words hung in the room like a heavy fog, tangible and pressing. Gunther, rising from his chair, added his voice to the cacophony of revelations. The proof you've seen is real. Berlin was turned to ash in a single act of violence the world has never seen before. But, he paused, his gaze sweeping over both men, and this is very important. The Brotherhood was not involved. Chapter 17 watching eyes. Gunther had been gone from the room for at least twenty minutes. Mark and John were left in a state of disarray, trying to make sense of the truths they had unearthed that night. I knew it. I told you the League was up to no good, John's voice echoed from the basement walls. Meanwhile, in the smaller side room, Gunther was engaged in a fervent discussion with two other men clad in similar grey jumpsuits. You went off the deep end back there, Gunther. Your emotions cloud your judgement. The man to his left voiced his concern. Gunther countered his companion. You idiot. Emotions are what we are fighting for. His hand slammed onto the table between them. And besides, I now know they are motivated. The man to Gunther's right queried, Are you going to send them to the scientist? Gunther leaned in close to the flickering candle at the centre of the table. The Brotherhood has been leaking proof to the outside world for years now. But the scientist has real proof. Proof that he will not entrust to us but maybe he'd give it to a couple of motivated outsiders who can protect it long enough to reach virality. Back in the main basement, Mark and John had fallen silent. The two men were exhausted, cold and overwhelmed. The echo of their own thoughts filled the room until John broke the silence. Mark, do you know what time it is? Mark glanced at his watch only to realise it had been broken in the struggle. Shit, no, he muttered. Gunther, having heard the tail end of their exchange, re-entered the room. It's time to move, he declared. Move. Where are you taking us now? John questioned the hulking figure. Gunther replied, We're not going anywhere. You, however, are going to pay someone a visit before you go. Do we have a choice? Mark spoke in a sarcastic tone. John, eyeing Mark, responded, Mark, sorry, my son and I are exhausted. We ask for a deal and I'm assuming this is it, yes? Gunther confirmed, "'Exactly. You'll be taking a trip across town to meet a scientist who has proof that the Brotherhood was not involved in the destruction of Berlin. You will convince him to give it to you, and you will take it to a trusted media outlet on the outside.' Gunther handed John a small scribbled-on map and a pair of grey jumpsuit overalls. "'If you get the proof, the Brotherhood will smuggle you back across the Rhine. Do we have a deal?' John stood up, extending a hand to Gunther. "'It's a deal.' The two men shook hands. John then smiled. Don't suppose you got any shoes to go along with the get-up? Gunther turned away, retreating back to the side room. Good shoes are like gold around here, old man. You're going to have to channel some of that soldier spirit instead. With that, he faded into the black of the side room, closing the door behind him. The two men took a few minutes to change into the grey jumpsuits and decipher the rudimentary map provided by Gunther. Once they had ventured outside and realised they hadn't strayed far from the castle, they proceeded to make their way into town. The streets were enveloped in darkness, with street lamps in various states of disrepair flickering sporadically. As they left the woodland and ventured into the urban district, the harsh concrete and asphalt was a harsh reminder to John of his lack of footwear. After referencing the map once more, they corrected their course to travel due east, aiming for an apartment block about one and a half kilometers away, located in an area designated as Block 615. As they navigated through the labyrinthine streets sticking to the shadows, they took in the unsettling atmosphere of the town. Posters plastered across alleyways and storefronts screamed out slogans in bold red text. The wall is our shield. Fear the foreign. The overseer is love. Each poster bore the same haunting watchful eyes that John had seen in the alleyway in Cologne. Suddenly, the stillness of the night was shattered by a rhythmic thudding noise. Accompanying it was a light, blazing like a solitary star in the night sky. But it was no star. John quickly turned to Mark, and the two men immediately sought cover. They ducked into a nearby alleyway as the ominous silhouette of a black helicopter hovered above. The sweeping beam of a spotlight cut through the darkness, combing the deserted streets as the thudding blades mirrored the men's pounding hearts. The spotlight scanned past their hiding spot without detecting them. As the helicopter continued its patrol route, the men breathed a sigh of relief. ''We need to get off these streets now. There's obviously a curfew or something going on here,'' Mark said, urgency threading his voice. John nodded in agreement, and the two men picked up their pace, eager to reach their destination as quickly as possible. Upon reaching their destination, they found themselves facing a towering, brutalist-style apartment block. According to the map, their contact, a scientist, resided on the fourth floor in room 430. Deciding it would be safer to use the rear entrance to avoid detection, they jumped a small brick wall and navigated through piles of uncollected trash. Upon reaching the rear door, they found it locked. John examined the area for any other access points but the building was almost devoid of any architectural features. Turning to Mark, John said, Would you kindly do the honours? With a smirk, Mark swiftly kicked near the lock of the weathered wooden door, splintering the wood and breaking the handle. I've always wanted to do that, you know, Mark confessed, looking at his father. John smiled. Well, if I can find some decent shoes, the next one's mine. Jokes aside, they refocused on their mission and began ascending the old concrete stairwell of the apartment building. Upon reaching the fourth floor, they cautiously peeked into the hallway, making sure the sound of the shattered door hadn't alerted anyone. Fortunately, the hall was still and silent. They then made their way to room 430, their final destination. Gathering their nerves, John knocked on the softwood door. After receiving no response, he knocked again and then again. ''Could they have gotten the room wrong?'' Mark whispered to his father. "'I don't know, maybe the guy's just asleep,' John replied. "'Try one more time louder this time,' Mark suggested. "'If they don't answer, we'll have to figure out something else.' John nodded, raising his hand to pound the door three times with loud knocks that echoed down the hallway. Finally, they heard signs of activity from within. A muffled shuffling of papers and the sound of footsteps approached the door. "'I'm terribly sorry, officers,' a voice called from behind the door. "'I was not avoiding the door. I was asleep, you see.' The door swung open, revealing a frail, elderly man with a look of fear in his eyes. He was dressed in the same grey overalls, his balding head visible above a worried expression. He was slightly older than John, but considerably more frail. Staring at the strangers before him, he asked, Who are you? What on earth are you doing out past curfew? Are you crazy coming to my door like this? We're sorry to disturb you, sir, but it was urgent that we meet with you, John began. You see, we were sent by the Brotherhood to... His words were cut off as the man's face turned from pale to red with rising anger. ''The Brotherhood! I told that big oaf I wanted nothing to do with his plan. It is a fool's errand and will get us all publicly executed.'' Mark interjected, ''Sir, we're not part of the Brotherhood. We're outsiders from London. We're here seeking truth. Gunther thinks we can handle whatever proof you may have.'' Still visibly agitated, the man looked around the hallway, scanning for any potential observers. "'If you were spotted, I'm dead by association now anyway, "'so you might as well come in,' he said. "'The name's Fritz, Fritz Strassmann. "'Now quickly, hurry up.' The two men shuffled inside, carefully closing the door behind them. Unbeknownst to them, a faint click echoed from the far end of the darkened hallway. Watching eyes had noticed their presence. Chapter 18. The Proof John and Mark entered Strassman's apartment, immediately struck by the cluttered mess of trash, dishes, and other miscellaneous items. The apartment was not well maintained, and navigating the tight spaces was difficult. In the living room, a small table and a chair were almost overwhelmed by a large round screen on the wall. It was on, its green glow casting an eerie light, while it silently flashed the same slogans they'd seen on the street posters. "'Were you really asleep?' Mark asked, somewhat incredulous. "'It looks like you were watching television.' Strassman didn't turn to look at Mark as he grumbled. The damn thing never shuts off. I'm just lucky the audio on this unit is broken. John and Mark watched as the stream of slogans on the screen was replaced by a silent parade of marching, silhouetted soldiers. Fear the foreign, Strassman mumbled to himself. John, catching the words, asked curiously, Who's the foreign? Strassman turned to look at John blankly. Everyone, he said, sitting down in his chair and propping his walking stick against the table. English, French, American, even Germans. Mark looked at him. Are you afraid of us? A pause filled the room before Strassman replied, The only thing I fear now is a painful death, unnecessarily heaped on top of my pointless existence. Is that why you won't help the Brotherhood? Mark asked. Why should I take a risk when I can just wait it out? My suffering won't be much longer, Strassman replied. Looking around the room, John started to notice something strange. The plates and cups were not simply discarded. They were smashed, with no clear signs of food or liquid on them. It dawned on him that Strassman might be deliberately starving himself. Finally, John spoke. Strassman, I too know what it feels like to lose hope. I have an incurable illness that's damaging my mind. Soon everything that makes me, me, will be gone. He knelt down to Strassman's level but my soul, my legacy, can live on in the hearts and memories of others. We can both choose to make a difference today so that we can live on tomorrow. Strassman looked deeply into John's eyes as if probing for deceit. All he found was a face that reflected his own. Strassman stood, leaving his stick behind, and walked into a side room. John and Mark stayed put, listening to the sound of bricks shifting and glass clinking. When Strassman reappeared, he was carefully carrying a small glass and metallic cylinder. It had a sealed screw lid, and it was marked with yellow and black. He placed it gently on the table and looked at the two men. Here is your proof, he said. The two men looked at the cylinder in confusion, its unassuming form offering no clue to its significance or its role in exonerating the Brotherhood from the Berlin accident. Strassmann then revealed, In the late 1930s, myself and Otto Hans led a team of scientists that discovered how to split the atom. It was a revolutionary breakthrough and held the potential for limitless energy production and prosperity. After the discovery teaming up with other scientists, including a brilliant man named Albert Einstein, we formed a coalition to present to the league that Germany could pursue this technology as an act of redemption that could be shared with the wider world. In short, The occupation could end in exchange for our labour in producing the power of the sun. They agreed. By the early 50s, we had discovered and established a small mine Elweiler just outside Berlin, and a considerable production network was underway. Progress was secretive and slow, but in 1955 it was complete. We were all ecstatic, and that hope clouded an adjacent project. You weren't the only one working on the technology, John interjected. His interest piqued. It is not like we had a competitor, but we did fail to notice a leech, Strassman explained, his voice heavy with regret. What became clear only in hindsight was the fact that our breakthroughs were being siphoned off and bastardized into something else, something that would not bring prosperity, but destruction. Mark chimed in, trying to make sense of it all. Dad, I think I'm getting it. Strassman and his colleagues were working on a solution for the occupation, and instead the uranium was used for an explosive device. Strassmann let out a hard cough, his throat dry and strained. Gathering himself, he clarified, No, the uranium was never used, of that I am certain. Our reactor worked with enriched uranium, and we only ever had a limited amount which was always accounted for. The bomb, which you have correctly identified, was not a uranium bomb, but a plutonium one, a substance made specifically for the atomic device. Strassmann then picked up the cylinder in his frail hands. I was not in Berlin when the bomb was detonated. I was here in Bonn visiting my family when I received news the city laid in ruins. The media reported that the plant had exploded and killed close to 300,000 people, including my mentors Otto and Albert. I could not believe it. Safety was a key priority, and the Corps was not capable of exploding in such a way. I wanted to join the investigation but I was refused and told to remain in Bonn, as far away as possible. It wasn't until five years later that an anonymous individual sent me this cylinder, the smoking gun, that a separate element had been produced and weaponized. With that, he held out the cylinder and passed it to Mark for inspection. Mark, examining the sealed plutonium, mused aloud, Overseer Barrett told me that the Great Reset will include the release of evidence to the world that Berlin was destroyed via corruption and poor management and that they attempted to harm other nations. This, this would seriously challenge the narrative of the League if it were to get to the media before the reset began. How long is that? Strassman asked, his voice tense. Maybe 48 hours at most, John answered. Well, we better get moving then. We will need to get back to Gunther and... Mark's voice trailed off as the distant thudding of helicopter blades once again pierced the quiet night. A spotlight shot through the broken windows of Strassman's balcony and the thudding crescendoed into a deafening roar. Then a crash. A small tube, hurled through a broken window, hit the ground and exploded with a blinding flash. The sound was crippling, the light overwhelming. All three men were brought to their knees, Strassman hitting the ground with a painful thud. Next came the intruders men in dark blue uniforms descended from ropes onto the balcony, crashing through the glass and exploding into the room, their shouts muffled in the ensuing chaos. Mark and John scrambled towards the exit, pushing past the clutter and debris until they reached the door. As they reached the threshold, a large figure blocked their way, a metal club brandished menacingly at his side. Overwhelmed with adrenaline, Mark tackled the giant to the ground. A struggle ensued, Mark managing to land two hits to the man's face before two more figures descended upon him. Panicked and trapped, John spun around in search of a weapon, anything to aid his son's struggle. But all he found was darkness, as one of the masked figures swung a brutal blow towards his head. His body fell against the door, slamming it shut. Blood trickled from his forehead, pooling under the door, and as it seeped out into the hallway, Mark's cries for his father disappeared down the stairwell, fading into the night. After 19, The Letter. Located in the heart of the United Kingdom, the Peak District National Park was a picturesque escape from the worries of city life. With its rolling green hills, winding rivers and idyllic canals, it served as the perfect setting for the Herald family's holiday cabin. An old stone structure nestled on the northern side of the park, it was a retreat where tranquility reigned supreme. Bridget Herald was strolling one of the trails near the cabin, her mind wandering amidst the peaceful scenery. Her heart, however, was weighed down with unease as she made her way back to the cabin, mentally preparing herself for the challenges the dawning day would bring. The world had dramatically changed over the past week and the tranquility of the National Park seemed more illusionary than ever. As Bridget opened the door, she heard the muted drone of a television news bulletin hosted by the Ministry of the Corps Library. She shed her boots and jacket, making her way into the living room where Elizabeth sat, her expression blank and her eyes glassy. She was rooted to an old red couch, fixated on the flickering screen. The suspect known to authorities as Harold is still at large, the newscaster's voice filled the room, and the overseer is currently seeking cooperation on the whereabouts of traitors and co-conspirators. As she stared, Elizabeth murmured to herself, this is all wrong. He would never have been involved in something this horrible. Just a week earlier, mere hours after the Great Reset took place, the world order had been thrown into disarray by a series of horrifying attacks. A state of emergency was declared almost worldwide, with centralised powers being passed to the League, as cities around the globe were rocked by a series of unthinkable explosions. It was like a row of dominoes falling. First Paris, its cosmopolitan heart wiped out in mere seconds, then Stalingrad, followed by an eruption in the depths of Manhattan, New York. By the time unknown German terrorists were intercepted by librarian security on their way to London, nearly 15 million lives had been lost. Near the top of an infamous list of traitors being broadcasted, every hour was one name that struck a personal chord, Herald. As the alleged insider and ringleader of the foiled London bombing, His name had gained a sinister reputation. The family, since the attack, had been confined by the British authorities and were currently not allowed to leave the area. Unable to bear the thought of having the hopeless conversation with Elizabeth again, Bridget decided to divert her attention to starting breakfast before the girls woke. Walking into the kitchen, she was confronted with an untouched mess, uneaten food, half-drunk glasses and rubbish scattered haphazardly on the bench. As she began to clear away the chaos she noticed a small envelope as thick as a pack of playing cards amidst the rubbish. It had arrived earlier in the week with no sender attached and in the ensuing chaos she had overlooked it. Desperate for a distraction Bridget decided to open the envelope. Her curiosity piqued by its mysterious contents. Almost instantly she was taken aback, dropping the envelope onto the counter. After a moment to gather herself she picked it up again removing a small, brown, weathered diary. It was John's. She recognised it immediately. Along with the diary was a single sheet of paper, a letter, which she read with keen intent. Dear Bridget, I want to start by saying thank you for being my partner, my best friend, my lover, and my rock since the years that we met. Your kindness and sense of adventure are infectious, and a life with you has been an adventure. That is why it pains me to know that from here on out i will only bring you pain stress and suffering each day the hollowing out will continue and no amount of love will ever fill me back up that is why i have decided to relieve you of your duty it was your sworn oath to save me and you did now it is my duty to save you remember us as we were not as the burden i was destined to become my heart always will belong to you By the time Bridget finished the last line, tears had already stained the page, causing the ink to bleed in all directions. With the letter still in her trembling hand, she collapsed onto the kitchen floor. A deep, uncontrollable cry erupted from within her, the pain of loss echoing off the stone walls of the cabin. As Bridget sobbed, her thoughts spun in a whirlwind of confusion and fear. The harsh reality seemed to distort around her as a barrage of questions bombarded her mind. What on earth was happening? Where was her son Mark? And where was John? Chapter 20 The Key The stern voice echoed in the small, sterile interrogation room. Overseer, he's coming around, it announced. John, battling a throbbing headache and waves of dizziness, was regaining consciousness. He opened his eyes slowly, the stark lighting of the room almost too much to bear. To his right, was a large rectangular mirror, its reflective surface casting back the room in sharp contrast. To his left, standing ominously behind him, was the figure who'd spoken, dressed in a dark blue tactical outfit, his face obscured by a ski mask. Directly in front of John was a large screen, currently showing nothing but a dark silhouette. He squinted, trying to bring the figure into focus, but it remained stubbornly undefined. The illusion shattered when the figure spoke, its voice cold, robotic, and disturbingly monotonous. Mr. Harold, we meet at last. John, thoroughly confused, made an attempt to rise. He was met with a swift push from the blue-clad figure, forcing him back into his seat. Don't get up, Mr. Harold. We have much to discuss. As I told your accomplice, you're the key to all of this. The figure's words were chilling, ringing hollow in the sterile room. John felt fear gnawing at the edges of his mind. Look. I don't know what's happening, John stammered, a wave of pain shooting through his forehead, causing him to clutch at it. I'm a... I'm a... You, Mr. Harold, are a traitor. And this is your trial, the cold voice cut him off. Wait, I'm a traitor to England. I would never... The screen remained unmoving as the figure began to read the charges. Let the record show that Mr. Harold is charged with high treason... For conspiring to instil terror against the United Kingdom in league with a known terrorist organisation known as the Brotherhood. The Brotherhood. Why does that name sound familiar? John wondered. The charges continued. John barely able to comprehend the words. The public should be aware that Mr. Harold is an individual motivated by a personal grudge. He is a disgruntled and disgraced government employee who manipulated others to gain access to his contacts in the Brotherhood. May I speak? John interjected, desperation seeping into his voice. "'Silence!' the screen retorted. "'You are on trial.' Taken aback, John fell silent. The figure continued. "'Next to give evidence will be a respected ministry "'of the core library employee.' The screen changed, replacing the silhouette "'with a man in his fifties with a stern face "'and jet black hair. "'My name is Simon Blackwell,' the man began. "'I'm here to corroborate the overseer's charges.' Mr. Herald did not work alone in his terrorist activities. He manipulated a ministry employee into stealing classified documents and forged a cover story to gain them both access to Germany. I know this because I was in regular contact with the employee who's currently still at large. I was betrayed. John's mind was a whirlwind of confusion. He was in Germany, working with someone else. But who? He could barely piece together the fragments of information. The overseer's image took over the screen once again. The public has heard proof that Mr Herald is both motivated and manipulative, capable of undertaking heinous acts of mass murder, the voice proclaimed emotionless. He is in league with the German Brotherhood's global network and is responsible for the bombing of London that claimed the lives of millions. We've all seen the images of the hellscape this man has caused, along with his accomplices, and it's clear that the reach of the Brotherhood extends not only aboard, but to traitors hid within our oldest institutions. John, aghast at the accusation, shot back. No, I must protest, he said, his fear turning into anger. How is it possible that I, one man, killed millions? The figure on the screen didn't hesitate. With the Germans' horror weapon, that's how. An atomic device, created in the fires of resentment and hate for the free and peace-loving world the very same device that you secured in Germany and planted in the heart of London, the overseer retorted. John started. I don't even know what an atomic bomb is, I... Before he could finish, a sharp blow to his abdomen interrupted him. The baton dug deep, hitting his ribs. He doubled over, gasping in pain. Interrupt the proceedings again, and you will be held in contempt of this trial, Mr. Herald, the figure spoke coldly. John then noticed the man who assaulted him unholster a pistol attached to his belt webbing. Considering all the evidence, it is clear that Mr. Herald is guilty of high treason. He will be put to death by public execution, as per the emergency powers currently granted to the League, announced the Overseer. Shortly after the Overseer finished, a new crackling voice echoed over the loudspeaker. Overseer, the recording is complete. It will be processed and delivered to you in the next 24 hours. Marvellous. The voice had suddenly and inexplicably changed from a robotic tone to a distinctly feminine one. John, sensing that the trial was clearly over, decided to risk speaking once again. What's the point of all this? How can we have a trial without a jury? I don't even have a lawyer. Public meddling will soon be a thing of the past, Mr Herald. Can't you see how much more efficient this was? ''No objections, just one simple truth,'' the overseer stated calmly. John responded, ''Well, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel remorse for a crime I have no recollection of committing.'' ''I don't care if you feel remorse, Mr. Harold. As I said at the beginning, you are the key to something much bigger, a revolution that is long overdue.'' ''What's that supposed to mean?'' John inquired cautiously. A long time ago I realised that simply putting out fires was never going to achieve the goal of the core narrative. When people are comfortable, their minds wander. They're untamable. What people need is motivation. The great peace was lacking a great enemy. The lights in the room began to flicker, but the overseer continued unfazed. You see, people are lazy, selfish. Moreover, most of them are unwilling to change their habits unless something is threatening them that's where you come in, Mr. Harold. The flickering lights intensified as the overseer's voice grew more impassioned. The world would never truly accept the great reset without a great tragedy, a chance to purge the filth and start anew, and the enemy, of course it's the old enemy, but with a twist, the enemy from within, a traitor that is always around the corner. John stared at the screen, the flickering lights reflected in his widened eyes. You're insane, he said the blood still trickling down his face. "'Insane is not what they call me here, Mr. Harold. "'You see, the Germans and I are more like family. "'Some even call me—' "'Before she could finish, the screen shut off "'and the halogen bulbs went dark. "'John and his captor were plunged into sudden darkness, "'and John seized his opportunity. "'Chapter 21. The Resistance. "'You nearly broke my goddamn jaw back there, Harold, you know that.' Gunther complained, rubbing his chin. They were sitting in the back of a van, its white interior and hollow panels forming a tight shell around the two men. It turned out that the Brotherhood had followed John and Mark to the apartment to monitor the progress, stationing themselves down the hall. When they heard the Overseer forces approaching, they sprang into action to assist the two men and recover the proof. But in the ensuing scuffle, they had decided that only Mark could be saved. ''We should have gone back for him. Why did you just leave him there?'' Mark protested passionately. ''You obviously know nothing about survival,'' Gunther retorted. ''The few old batons we've scraped together would have been no match for a fully armed enforcement unit. They have semi-automatic weapons, stab-proof vests, hell, even grenades. Your old man didn't even have shoes.'' Gunther turned towards his driver and spoke. ''Give me the ETA,'' the driver replied. ''We should be at the Cologne compound in five minutes.'' Gunther then turned back to Mark. Survival is about making practical and realistic choices. If you act with only this, Gunther pointed to Mark's chest, then you're never going to be ready for what's coming. Mark sat in silence. He knew the situation was hopeless. But that doesn't mean we're deserting him, Gunther continued. We know where they're taking him. And better yet, we still have something they want. Mark looked down at his lap and gazed at the plutonium sealed in the protective cylinder. "'So what's the plan?' he asked, his voice filled with resolve. "'The plan is that we approach the compound where your father is more than likely being interrogated. "'We assume thereafter information on the Brotherhood, "'so it's fair to say he's being squeezed for that information.' Mark cringed at the thought. Gunther continued, "'When we get to the compound we intend to cause a distraction. "'That should give you a chance to enter the building and locate your father.' Mark felt a surge of adrenaline course through his body, a desperately needed energy boost as the hours crept towards five in the morning. Gunther, we're just about to hit the first checkpoint, the man in the passenger seat announced. "Okay, Mark, Gunther started. We're going to drop you off here, about a hundred metres from the back entrance. We'll take this hunk of junk down the road and start a little fire. When you see the smoke, that's your window. Mark nodded, shoving the cylinder into one of the pockets of his grey jumpsuit. Also take this. Gunther handed Mark an old Luger pistol. Its brown handle was chipped and worn and the barrel was matte black. Why didn't you use this back at the apartment? Mark asked, confusion lacing his words. This thing is a relic, probably from the Great War itself. It's got three rounds, that's it. Not enough to take on a whole unit of librarians, but maybe enough for one guard. Mark took the firearm into his hands. He had never held a gun in his life. It felt foreign. The safety is already off Gunther said as the van pulled to a sharp stop all you need to do is point exhale and squeeze with that the large man flung open the van doors pushing Mark out into the breezy night air as he went to close the door he offered one last piece of advice to Mark oh and Mark if you get caught those bullets are better than what the librarians will do to you Mark's face was stony and resolute he nodded at Gunther and then waved them off the van doors shut, and it tore off into the night. Mark crouched in the shadows, evaluating his surroundings. The old brick compound was guarded by a rusty security fence and a lone sentry standing at the front entrance. It was not long until his attention was drawn to the exploding vehicle in the distance. That's my cue, Mark muttered to himself, his heart pounding. Taking advantage of the distraction, Mark made his move. He darted across the gravel road, and to the hole in the fence, carefully avoiding the sweeping gaze of the security cameras. However, as he neared the back entrance of the compound, his heart sank. The door was sealed shut by an electronic lock. Darn it, he muttered under his breath, scanning his surroundings for a solution. That's when he spotted an old power box mounted on the compound's outer wall. That could work, he thought, sprinting toward it. However, he was met with disappointment once again, The box was sealed shut with a sturdy padlock. He shook it violently, but to no avail. I have got no time for this, he grumbled, drawing the Luger pistol from his pocket. With a quick aim and a controlled breath, he fired. The padlock shattered into pieces, allowing him to pry open the door of the power box. Inside was an array of switches and wires. There was no master switch, no easy way to cut the power to the compound. Of course it won't be that simple, he mumbled, "'frustration seeping into his voice. "'His gaze fell on the Luger again. Two bullets left. "'Can it even damage this circuitry? "'And if it does, I'm practically defenceless. "'Think, Mark, think.' "'His fingers brushed against the cylinder in his pocket. "'A glimmer of hope sparked in his mind. "'He knew the next move he was about to make was risky, "'even desperate. "'But it was the only chance he had to infiltrate the compound. "'Nothing short of a Hail Mary. "'Cradling the cylinder in his hands,' Mark carefully examined its sealed casing. After ensuring its integrity, he decisively cracked the seal and unscrewed the lid, revealing a smaller metal tube within. A tiny glass window on the tube allowed him to glimpse the silver-enriched plutonium inside. Mark steeled himself. He quickly devised a plan in his mind. Open it, dump it in the box, make sure it's touching the board, close the lid and back away swiftly. His movements were meticulous and calculated. Unscrewing the lid, he slid the silver rod adjacent to the circuit board, cautious not to let it touch anything else. His heart pounded in his chest as he shut the lid, hastily retreating towards the rear entrance. He stood there, his breath coming in ragged gasps, as he prayed for a miracle. Minutes ticked away in a tense silence, leaving Mark's hopes hanging by a thread. He stared at the still operational camera, its mechanical eye relentless in its surveillance. This isn't going to work, he murmured to himself, a sinking feeling in his gut. But fortune was not done with him yet. A loud zap sounded off, and the compound fell into darkness. The camera froze, its glowing eye extinguished. With the door's magnetic lock now disengaged, Mark wasted no time. He charged forward, yanking the handle and stepping into the eerie blackness of the compound's halls. The crunching sound of shattered old light bulbs under his shoes echoed in the silence. He ventured deeper into the compound, his ears tuned to a faint noise, the sound of a struggle. His grip tightened around the handle of his pistol as the noise grew louder. His pace quickened, his eyes strained in the darkness until they caught sight of a door at the end of the main hall. A small window in the door, lit up with a flash, followed by the deafening bang of a firearm, then another, and another. Panic surged within him. "'Dad!' he yelled, his voice echoing in the empty halls. With a renewed sense of urgency, Mark sprinted towards the door, his pistol at the ready. He exploded into the room just as the red safety lights flickered to life, bathing the room in an eerie hue. A figure stood at the centre, wielding a tactical handgun over a lifeless body that was bathed in an unsettling shade of deep purple. As the gunman turned, Mark's heart stopped in his chest. Bloodied and battered, The weathered features of his father's face came into focus. John kept his gun trained on Mark, his voice trembling. Who are you? Do you work for them too? The muzzle of the gun danced slightly, a reflection of John's internal struggle. Dad, it's me, Mark. Don't you remember me? Mark's voice was filled with an undercurrent of desperate hope. But John shrugged off the sentiment, a cruel laugh escaping his lips. I think I would remember having a son, he retorted dismissing the idea with a wave of his gun. More lies. Now get out of my way or you'll end up like your partner here. Mark read the determination in his father's eyes and he knew John was serious. He lowered his gun to the floor, his voice catching in his throat. Dad, I know you're in there. Please, we said we'd do this together. John stepped closer, gun now pointed directly at Mark's chest. His hands were shaking as he coldly challenged, Give me one reason why I should listen to you. Mark could smell the burnt residue of the recent gunshot. His mind raced for a lifeline. "'Bridget!' he finally blurted out. John's eyes darted around the room as if searching for an invisible ghost. "'What did you say?' he rasped, his grip on the gun weakening. "'Dad, you have to get back to Bridget.' The weight of the name seemed to crack the shell that had enclosed John's mind. John repeated the name like a sacred prayer. "'Bridget.' Then his gaze snapped to Mark. Realization dawning. "'And you're Mark.' "'A smile crept onto his face as he dropped the gun, "'enveloping his son in a tight embrace. "'I'm so sorry, son. What have I done?' "'Mark gently held his father's face, "'a surge of relief coursing through him. "'Dad, it's okay. You're a survivor.' "'But Dad, we really need to get out of here. "'Gunther is waiting for us.' "'Mark tried to pull away, but his father held him tight. "'Wait, the recording. "'I was interrogated about a bomb that went off in London.' We have to get that recording or at least some information. Mark's heart pounded in his chest. London, Jesus Christ, are you serious? Mark's concern then turned to focus on the sound of approaching voices. Dad, we seriously don't have time. We have to get the plutonium and get to Gunther. If you're not in custody, the recording won't work anyway, right? Mark reasoned. I guess, okay, let's go, John conceded, the urgency of their situation settling in. The moment Mark opened the door... A hail of bullets ricocheted off it. He dove to the floor, grabbing his pistol. Cover in three, two, one. He fired a blind round down the hallway, giving them a moment's respite to bolt towards the rear entrance, the moonlight a beacon in the dark hallway. They were but mere metres from the outside world when John collapsed, clutching his foot. His bare feet were littered with glass shards, blood oozing from numerous cuts. Dad, come on, get up, I'll carry you, Mark urged. But John clutched Mark's collar. "'Pulling him close, his voice barely a whisper. "'This is the end of the line for me, Mark.' "'He took Mark's pistol from him. "'This is my Alamo, and I couldn't be more proud of you.' "'The distinct sound of advancing guards echoed through the hall, "'bullets flying around them. "'Dad, I won't let you down. "'I'll keep our family safe, I promise.' "'Mark choked back tears, the harsh reality sinking in. "'I know you will, son.' "'John's voice was full of conviction. "'With a last surge of energy,' "'He hoisted himself onto his bleeding feet, "'brandishing the gun. "'Go!' "'He fired the last round, hitting one of the guards. "'Mark took the opportunity to bolt towards the door, "'slamming it shut behind him. "'The deafening silence that followed "'was broken by the click of an empty gun. "'John sank to his knees, the guards surrounding him. "'He's out, take him alive. "'The overseer needs him for the public execution,' "'one of them commanded. "'I have also secured the recording, sir,' "'said one of the three figures.' John then whispered something indiscernible. The guards leaned in. You got something you want to say, traitor. With that, a small metal ring clinked on the floor, echoing ominously. John then looked up, revealing a stolen live grenade in his bloody hands. Long live the resistance, you wankers. It was too late for the guards to react. A blinding flash and a deafening explosion erupted from John's hands, setting the hallway completely ablaze. Chapter 22. The Great Reset. Having managed to procure a second-hand black sedan, Gunther and his men were set to provide a swift getaway. Mark, securely clutching the plutonium in his hands and with tears in his eyes, jumped into the back seat, and the car peeled off down the road. As the fugitives all raced towards the hohenzollern Bridge, they were greeted in the distance by the ominous roar of the helicopter once again. Inside the helicopter, a librarian perched precariously in the open side door, his webbing secured to the chopper's frame as he leaned into the early morning air. Still no update from the group leader, the pilot radioed through the audio system. Copy, the librarian responded. I'm going to proceed with disabling the vehicle before it crosses the bridge. The librarian then pulled out an automatic rifle, its scope zeroing in on the darting vehicle below. Down on the deserted city streets, Gunther expertly manoeuvred the sedan, the first light of dawn spilling onto the horizon. The gunner took a deep breath to slow his heart rate. His sight locked on target when a loud crackle over the headphones made him startle. Gunner, stand down. You're not cleared to engage, came the pilot's voice. Repeat that order, the gunner demanded, the sedan rapidly disappearing from his sights. Direct orders from the overseer. She's returning to London. The plans have changed, the pilot informed him. Understood. The gunner sighed, laying down his weapon and pulling himself back inside the chopper. As the battered sedan crashed through the barricade and onto the bridge, Mark glanced back to see the helicopter veer away, shrinking into the distance. A sigh of relief escaped his lips, but deep within him, he knew their fight was far from over. As the sedan weaved through the labyrinthine city streets of Cologne, disappearing into the heart of the old city, the sun rose on a new day a day that marked the beginning of a new era. The Great Reset had begun.